0: You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome back to the Oz Network for the beginning or end of a month. um, Let's just start saying project or uh, six-week period, whatever it is, because uh, we're moved on from Jurassic World and this is going to take us more than a month. And I know we're not in a new month, but let's just call it Mission Impossible Month. As Ben was basically explaining that... His entire reason for doing this was so he could do Jurassic Park and cover all those movies. This is kind of my equivalent at this point, to be able to talk about the Mission Impossible series, all five, which we're going to lead all the way up to the new one when that comes out uh, next month sometime. But we're going to start here with not the original, as an originated of the series, but the original of the franchise and of uh, Tom Cruise's action movie career, Mission Impossible 1 from 1996 my name is colin and they're dead my team my team is dead
1: <laughs> and my name is ben and hustle lasagna don't get it on you d- 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 whatever it's that quote that amelia west of it says i can't say it i'm running i'm running like tom cruise just imagine me running i'm running a lot because i'm tom cruise the lasagna there's an elevator above me <laughs> <laughs> the one line that it's I wanted so to quote, I stuffed it up.
0: Pasta <laughs> lasagna, don't get any on you. <laughs> I'm running. I'm running. With Tom Cruise.
1: He runs a lot. He's always
0: running. He He's gonna run more in each movie too. <laughs> This guy's got great cardio. It all kind of begins here. <laughs> he breaks his leg um,
1: jumping between buildings, alright? This guy's pretty cool.
0: He's insane. And, and This is one of the reasons why I think it's going to be interesting to cover this, because for a few reasons. One, this franchise has been going for 22 years now, and I can't think of any other franchise that has consistently run this long. I mean, you've got... Movie series like Star Wars, where it starts and it stops. You know, you could say the same thing for Star Trek. Even James Bond, it starts and it stops. This is one franchise, and even though, yeah, Tom Cruise is kind of the only thing that's been in all of them, I mean, you could say Vin Rings, Ving rings outside of like Ghost Protocol, where we may have a cameo, but like, everything changes with this series. I mean, you get different directors every time, different crew, different cast, um, you've never even had them have the same boss from one movie to the next. So these movies are all so different, but they found a way throughout the first five here to kind of tie it all together, so it still is one franchise, and there's nothing else out there that's been around this long consistently, Uh, and there's so many things where each of these movies is so different from the other, and it was by design that way, like Tom Cruise intended from the beginning, that any sequels would be completely different from the previous one, and they would all have a completely different tone. Uh, but we're able to see the beginning of tom cruise as an action star here and it's so funny that when this movie came out tom cruise as an action star was like what like he had done top gun yes he had done days of thunder but he was sitting in a cockpit or sitting in a driver's seat for those movies it's not like he was fighting or or jumping or running or <laughs> anything exciting like that and it, it it was a tough sell i think it took Probably a couple of these movies before people really bought him, but now here we are 22 years later, and he's probably considered to be like the number one action star in the world, especially for what he brings to these movies himself. And here we're going all the way back to the game, and it's so different watching this movie from the other ones. I don't know if uh, if you remember this time period or a time period when Tom Cruise was not known as just the action star. I mean, I'm
1: probably of the age where, to me, this is kind of all he is. I mean, because that's sort of what I grew up with him as. Um, I mean, it's so different to what we're talking about in Jurassic Park with Vince Vaughn, um, the esteemed Nick Van Owen. You know, there was a time before he was a comedic actor. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to me, Tom Cruise has always kind of been the action star, Um, just because when, I mean, when this movie came out, I was nine, so I don't actually remember a whole lot, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second, about this coming out, when it all did and everything, but, um, you know, I mean, I've obviously gone back and watched some of Tom Cruise's, you know, earlier stuff, um, I mean, I I I like Tom Cruise, I think we should establish that from the beginning, I'm a bit of a Tom Cruise fan, I had a friend who was madly in love with him and was, like, the biggest fan in the world, but, um... Yeah, it's 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 interesting that he doesn't seem to be that much of a popular person to like anymore, but I, I still like Tom Cruise, and I just want to point that out from the beginning.
0: Well, I'll say there's been ups and downs, and I think, you know, over the last five years, it's definitely become cool to like Tom Cruise again, and you still get those people who are critical of him for stupid reasons, but yeah, I and mean, that's the other thing, as we go through the series, we're going to cover periods where it's like, Tom Cruise was affecting movie's box office, <laughs> And yet this movie could still make, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. But, you know, once we get up to three, it's going to be really interesting to see just uh, what his fame did. I mean, at the time this came out, I don't think I had that much knowledge. I know I had seen Top Gun maybe a few years before this came out. Uh, I might have seen Days of Thunder on TV. Uh, I was familiar with The Firm and, um, uh, you know, far and away in a couple of the more recent movies where I'm like, I had seen the commercials. But, I mean, he was making... Not adult films in the way that Jamie wishes that he was making adult films, but he was making. I was like, what? Hang on a minute. I've missed this whole part
1: of Tom Cruise's. No wonder he went to
0: Scientology. Oh, we got to watch Magnolia one day. Even just Tom Cruise's scenes in Magnolia. That could be fun. But, uh, no, like he was making, like, movies that your parents would watch. So, uh, I don't think I really was a Tom Cruise fan until this came out. Funny enough, just going through a little bit of history here. You know, I. You said you were nine when you came, this came out. I was fifteen, and I might have even been the only fifteen year old at the time who knew what Mission Impossible was. Because I mean, mm-hmm. Mission Impossible goes back thirty years earlier than this movie came out. Like nineteen sixties is when the TV show debuted, and it was on the air for years. Uh, and obviously, I was decades away from being born at the time this show was on the air. But in the eighties, it ran from eighty eight to ninety. There was. Uh, I wouldn't call it a reboot. It was like a sequel TV series which had a few of the actors from the original Mission Impossible and it was a continuation like 20 years later. And I probably had no clue what was going on in the show half the time, but I was kind of a weird kid, like weird 7-, 8-year-old, 9-year-old kid in that most of the shows I liked were shows that were probably like, I don't know, a decade older than <laughs> – uh, at least a typical audience was a decade older than I was – and I didn't understand much about it, but I just remember loving that 80s Mission Impossible show, and most people don't even know it existed. I was able to find some of the episodes uh, years ago, and I rewatched most of it, but I was like a big Mission Impossible fan, so when I saw like the trailer for this the first time, I'm like, it's Mission Impossible, and everybody else is like, is that the one with the theme music? Like, <laughs> nobody knew anything about it. Uh, but I mean, the movie comes out, I think, mostly because of Tom Cruise's star power. It becomes like this huge hit. I remember I wanted to see it. I still wasn't... Quite at the age where I was going to go to movies myself, um, but it took maybe a couple of months before I was able to see this. convince my brother to go see it, and we saw it. And even though we had no clue what was going on in half of this movie, there was something we just really liked about it, and went back like a week or two later, and we ended up seeing it twice. And then you know, uh, as soon as it came out of video, I got that and. It's one of these movies, especially if you're younger when it comes out. I mean, I would bet there are... Pro- I, I know of middle-aged people who saw this movie in 1996, and it took them two or three viewings to really understand everything the plot. Oh, it was good. It's thought just totally medium. different... I thought
1: I was dumb watching this again.
0: Yes! <laughs> <laughs> Thank God! You'll be... I have questions, Colin. I have questions. <laughs> <laughs> but But, no, that was so weird at the time, and Again, it's one of these things where I think nineteen ninety-six was the last year a movie like this could come out and really surprise people. Because everything kind of changes after this, maybe as a result of this and doesn't get enough credit for it. But this was such a complicated movie and not what you'd expect from a big blockbuster action movie. And I think that's one of the the, the reasons that you know there was so much interest in the franchise. But we'll we'll talk about it a little bit throughout this. I mean, this movie angered a lot of older people who grew up watching the show and I think it would be interesting to draw some comparisons later on. But, I mean, I, I just remember seeing this, and I don't think I immediately was, like, absolutely in love with this movie. But it's one of these things that the more I watched the more I understood the movie, the more I, I loved it. And I can't even tell you how many times I've seen it. It's one of these movies where, yeah, I took a lot of notes, but they're, like, one words. I'm like, train, you know, uh, tunnel. <laughs> like, I don't need to keep notes. I mean, I know the movie, like, backwards and forwards, just like Jurassic Park.
1: Uh, I think this is the second time I've ever seen this movie and like I remember seeing this uh when it came out in video. I think Dad and I got it out, you know, on VHS. because um, I I think I may have said this last week or we've talked about it before, but coming into this I've only ever seen the first two. I've never seen anything past Mission Impossible two, so and I'll discuss my reasons behind the fact that I haven't really gone out of my way to really watch these films. But, um I mean, this was really that period. Like, you know, what, nowadays it's all about reboots and sequels and everything along those lines. This was kind of when everything, TV, was being made into movies, wasn't it? Obviously, we had Lost in Space. Was it like two years after this? I think they'd made a Brady Bunch movie around about this point, hadn't they? Um yeah. God, everything was getting made at that point. But, um, I Beverly mean, the Well, oh, who, who doesn't rem- it to beaver? remember those classics? Um, <laughs> <laughs> they never made an I dream of genie movie, did they? I know they made a bewitched one no. a few years later. Um, Tom yeah. Cruise connection with Nicole Kidman. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird. Cause like, again, I sort of don't remember a whole lot around this release except for seeing it in the video store and, I, I mean, my dad and I would sort of get out, you know, your action films, you know, that's what we would do on a Saturday night, and I just don't think that dad and I ever really fell madly into the Mission Impossible films, like, you know, we'll get to the second one next week, but, um, yeah, so I I kind of, I don't, I've just never gone out of my way to watch it, I think I watched this when I was little, and I mean, if I don't understand it now, I can't imagine what I thought about it when I was younger, Um, <laughs> I, I was much more intelligent back then, I'm like, oh yes, he clearly was evil. Um, but I was British when I was a nine-year-old as well, but, um, I was so confused in this movie, like, I'm watching this thinking, oh God, Colin's going to think I'm dumb, this is probably like the really easy plot, like, he's going to think, you're so stupid, but I'm so glad you started out by saying, oh, people needed to watch this movie multiple times before they understood it. I'm still trying to understand the Matrix, like, 20 years later, and I've watched that how many times, so, it shows my intelligence.
0: You know what's what's good about that though. I mean, yeah, you have these movies where it's really confusing, but that was the intention with this movie because that's the way the TV show is. And I I said that I, you know, grew up at least for that short period, the two years where the '80s series was on the air, loving the '80s series. But uh, I've watched the '60s, like the original '60s series, since then. Um, You know, whenever I got a chance, like uh, there was, uh, I I, I can't remember what what's it called. TV Land, I think it's called, Uh, that's the network in, the the Canadian one's completely different, but like, TV Land's the American network that, I guess they originally showed like all these classic shows, and I remember my sister, uh, the apartment she was living in uh, at one point had like a satellite, and she got TV Land, and she's like, oh, it's got all these other shows, you should come over and record it, and I would go over to her house like in the afternoon or early evening, like before she was off work. And I would just record Mission Impossible episodes and watch them. And I was lucky enough, uh, I think just a week ago, to find season one of the Mission Impossible TV series, uh, the box set at Walmart. And you know, just watching that again, like I can see so many similarities. And people have said for years, oh, the movies are nothing like the TV shows. These movies are a lot more like the TV show, especially this first one, a lot more like the TV show than anybody really gives it credit for. Because the TV show is the exact same way. Like, you have no clue what they're doing or what's going on into probably the last 60 seconds of an episode. And then it's kind of, if you've been paying close enough attention, you piece it all together. Uh, with this movie, they took it to a completely different level. And I kind of rewatched it this time, wondering, has... Movies changed enough where we can now expect this, especially out of spy movies. You look at the James Bond movies, how complex they've gotten. Like, you, you look at Skyfall and Spectre compared to Tomorrow Never Dies, and the world is not enough. And it's amazing what like 15, 20 years can do. So, I wondered, is this something that people would understand more coming out now? And there were parts of this where I'm like, oh, yeah, like the style of storytelling has changed enough where people see this coming whereas at the time they didn't but there are also something still in this especially when they start to do the reveals of you know is it Phelps or is it Kittredge later on where I'm like if you release this movie today and nobody knew anything about this they'd still probably be lost
1: and I don't dislike what they do in this movie and what they try and do I, I like a movie which tries to throw you you know a curveball every now and then and, and make it so that you're thinking a lot. I, I like movies like that. Um, so I think it's kind of, it's clever. And I think obviously we're going to be doing a lot of comparisons in the next few weeks between these and, and James Bond, you know, cause download 007 now available via iTunes. Um, and I think we've talked, you know, a few times on our 007 episodes about Mission Impossible, but <laughs> I think, I mean, just based on one film, there's obviously a lot of differences in the fact that I think you've always mentioned that these are a lot more spy, a lot more like, creep yeah. around and it's been a while in the james bond franchise that i guess we've just had a truer, you know spy film as opposed to kind of going more for the action side of things so um yeah i i like it when you get thrown something like that and you've got to think and i can definitely see going through this that you know you you watch it a few more times and um you understand it but thank god for wikipedia that i can read the uh synopsis <laughs> afterwards i'm like oh okay i get it now sort of not really but i pretend to
0: you know, These are famous last words on the Oz Network, or famous first words in our case, but I have a feeling this isn't going to be as long as the other episodes <laughs> we do, just because so much, <laughs> so much of this is like, you know, just cover all the plot in as big of a section as we can and try to understand it. I just want to say, I, I completely understand this movie, um, sure. but there are people <laughs> listening to this right now who probably remember this as the movie that was way too confusing, like in nineteen ninety six, so much so that I, I distinctly remember uh Tom Cruise doing an interview before part two came out. I think it was with Larry King. And they were asking about part two. It says, is part two more complicated or less complicated than the first one? And the thought of the time was everybody was saying we need a less complicated Mission Impossible movie. That's all the people said. But I don't know. I it'll be interesting to get your opinion to see if this is something that's easier to follow now in 2018. Not that we've gotten smarter, because we definitely haven't, but just <laughs> that so many other movies have done this really complicated storytelling and all these swerves, uh, even just with the James Bond movies and what's happened since then.
1: Uh, It'll be interesting when we get to the second one, too, because I actually remember a lot of promotion around that just because it was filmed in Australia, so it was a very big deal mm-hmm. here when that came out. But, um, yeah i i mean as much as i had not remembered a lot about this film god i couldn't tell you anything about mission impossible 2 except there's some rocks <laughs> and there's some sunglasses <laughs> there's a motorbike Sandy newton's in it that's about it <laughs> so
0: you and it's a song the by right biscuit <laughs> which i actually kind of
1: like so yeah there you go <laughs>
0: yeah uh let's start with the movie here so the first thing, that this pre-title scene, which is incredibly short compared to what we're used to now, even with the other Mission Impossible movies. I think every Mission Impossible movie has had a pre-title scene with the exception of three, um, if I'm remembering right. I'm trying to think of what Ghost Protocols was, but I know all the other ones do. I mean, this one is like, I don't know, 90 seconds if that. But this is basically like picking up at the end of a Mission Impossible episode. Like, you know nothing what's going on. You've got a guy there... Wearing a mask. You could clearly tell, even though it's a black and white TV, uh, that it's Tom Cruise. And they have some guy there, and there's a dead hooker on the bed. Um, <laughs> so sorry to say, I, that's my assumption. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know if she's supposed to be, but that's my assumption. Like, he took some girl back to his room. Now she's dead. He calls some mob boss. What do I do? Like, you're not supposed to understand what they're doing here. This is like catching the last five minutes of a Mission Impossible TV episode. And you still get that cool reveal of everything that's going on. But, I mean, even still, you don't know what's going on here. And when he's basically saying, give me the name, we got Emilio Estevez there, which that was one of the big surprises, even in 1996. I don't think anybody knew Emilio Estevez was going to be in this movie, because they intentionally kept him off of the promotional materials. He, he's uncredited in this movie. Like, I don't even think his name appears in the credits, beginning or end. And I've heard, I've like, different stories since then, but for the most part, the general opinion seems to be they wanted to surprise the audience, which has a lot to do with what they're going to do with Phelps, who's the only character that's held over from the TV show. And just having Emilio Estevez be the first character you see in this movie, and nobody knows Emilio Estevez in this movie, it was just all supposed to throw people off. Uh, but, you know, he's on his computer, and he's watching this, and they just need a name. Uh, so the guy who killed the hooker, we think, <laughs> gives him a name. Um, and then all of a sudden, he, you know, the mob boss or whatever, Tom Cruise, wearing a mask, you know, gives him a drink. The guy passes out. Uh, he rips off the mask. So there's the first mask reveal we get, which this kind of goes back to the TV series, too. I don't think they really had masks. It's elaborate, but uh, the similar type of thing. He says, get rid of that scum. You know, there's one of your quotable lines in the movie, Ben. Get rid of that scum. Start <laughs> <It's not> again. <laughs> we get the set pull apart. So now you realize, oh, they're on a set. And then... Tom Cruise, Ethan Hunt comes to the rescue of Dead Hooker, uh, Claire, (laughs) who he's pretty touchy. I'm going to say right from the beginning here, and it was interesting doing some reading. I kind of know everything that's going to happen in this movie, obviously, but I'm always really caught off guard by how touchy he is and just the way these two interact. It's like they're the couple from the beginning, and I think there was a reason for that that was maybe cut from the movie uh, or that they didn't film, who knows, but it was their intention at some point to kind of have, I don't know if it was, like, th- this affair or just some type of more complex love triangle, but, like, I don't know, he's he's pretty hands-on with her, and <laughs> enjoying, you It's not you a know, 96, uh, Colin,
1: you're allowed to get away with that back then. There was no yeah, it. well,
0: even when she's revived, it's not like... Oh, I oh I almost died there. She's like almost seducing. I was like, did we get him, Ethan? Like, <laughs> she's like licking her lips. <laughs> There's a lot of flirtation with these two going on that's like not so obvious. Um, so she finally comes to, and then we get the fuse. And this is the classic TV show. And another thing that nobody really notices about this whole franchise in these movies is that the opening credits that occur here they're done in the style of. TV opening credits. I'm not just talking about they have the fuse and the, the the theme music, but when they have the names coming up, the titles and everything, you're seeing flashes of everything that's going to happen in the movie. I mean, if you were to take all the freeze frames that happen during these opening credits, it, it's just like when you watch a TV show and it's like, "Oh, they got this shot of, you know, uh uh I don't know, an ER, right? ER is one that <laughs> always comes to mind with you got the Anthony Edwards uh, rolls out of his chair, and they cut to maybe two or three different yeah. shots from different episodes of Carter him. Carter
1: bent down with a stethoscope in his hands, <laughs> having a yes. yeah.
0: Why is ER... Like, I stopped watching that show, you know, I don't know, probably maybe not even halfway through. It just caught it bits and pieces from there. Everybody knows the ER credits by heart. Yeah. <laughs> we got <laughs> Because, <laughs> because it was like, like
1: they had them for so long, and because, you know, when all the main cast sort of left, they gradually changed them, but... Um, yeah. yeah, because I just, it was one of those shows that you, you, I mean, the theme song is just amazing and just, just the, it's so dramatic, the, and then you just got, you know, Anthony and- Edwards in his chair, like, and that's on the very first episode, <laughs> bless you, uh, when he's, uh, staring at Carter when Carter's introduced, oh, God, I love AR, can we do AR all 15 seasons of it?
0: <laughs> can we just say, nothing is more iconic than Eric LaSalle taking the one knee and going, yes! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: Oh, uh, hashtag bring back Eric LaSalle.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, hashtag
1: whatever happened to Eric LaSalle.
0: <laughs> but I don't know if you caught that during this, but uh, yeah. I think it took a couple of times for I realized that. And every Mission Impossible movie since then, I think, again, with the exception of Part 3, you know J.J. Abrams has to be different unless he's making a Star Wars movie, in which case he just remakes everything. But with this, it's all done like a TV show, and you can see the plot of the movie unfold during the opening credits. Uh, this is just the classic theme here so then we'll just kind of do a whole introduction here up to the first mission uh so jim phelps is on the plane and this is the only character that comes from the tv series and i'll mention maybe a little bit later maybe once phelps dies i'll remember to talk about (laughs) and that was the one thing about this movie that was spoiled for me before i saw it too so the only thing that didn't confuse me but um this is the main character from the TV show. Now, he he came in in either the second or I don't know if it was the beginning of the second season or the halfway through the second season, of like the 60s show. Uh, they replaced the original lead with uh, Peter Graves, who plays Jim Phelps. And he also was the lead in the 80s remake TV show they did. And that was the one holdover they had. And at one point, there was talk about bringing Peter Graves back, which I'll talk about a little bit later on once we kill off Phelps. Sorry for the spoilers. Uh-huh. <laughs> you should be happy. I'm finally explaining this movie to you.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still, still sucking. This is good because Gordon Bombay's in the opening part of this movie, so this is fine. Yes. <laughs>
0: uh, but
1: Flying V! Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, just wanted just to say that on the here. elevator.
0: <laughs> I'm going to do uh, a... Just side note here. Somebody at work was talking to you. They were complaining about hockey, and they're like, you know, what's that... Uh, that hockey team where they all kind of they group themselves together and he was talking about a real hockey play, but I'm like, the Mighty Ducks, and he's like, No, it was something that like I think Nashville did in the series with the Jets, and I'm like, You just described the flying V from the Mighty Ducks. <laughs> 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 and this guy um... probably never seen. It. Well,
1: I think, I think anybody out there, when we to do the Mighty Ducks, we talk about it more, but there's some great articles out there from hockey, like experts who basically analyze the crap out of it, saying like, the flying bee's illegal. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> <laughs> it's the most easily defended move in all of hockey. How dumb are the hawks? <laughs> um, anyway, sorry, moving on.
0: Yeah. So Phelps, this is the way all the TV episodes started. It was Phelps getting his mission. And I think they found clever ways and they do the same thing in the movie, but it was always something different. Sometimes you pick up a phone at a you know a payphone. Sometimes he would get like a, a cassette recorder in the mails. Sometimes he would. Uh, we're gonna see like in part five where he goes into a listening booth at a music store, and there's always these little different things. Now here he's on the plane and he's like, "Oh, do you want to watch a movie?" It's like, "No, how about the cinema of the Ukraine?" Which it took me until this time watching the movie to realize when they say Ukraine, they're they're trying to spell out <laughs> the region that they're going to where their <laughs> mission is. Uh, and I, I got that I, at the on, end when they're like,
1: how about the cinema the- of the Caribbean? Caribbean? Maybe yeah. Aruba? Jamaica? Who I want to <laughs> take you. Sorry.
0: <laughs> but then Phelps listens to this private message, and it's uh, this is explaining the, the setup for the plot and everything. This is how all the TV shows started. The, the one thing I think, no matter who you are, if you ask, what do you know about Mission Impossible? They're probably going to say, I know the dun, 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 dun. And they're going to say, this message will self-destruct in five seconds. Uh, so, I mean, that's those are the, the the things that everybody knows about this, and they have them both within the first five minutes. So, basic plot here that he gets in his mission briefing is uh, this guy Gallitzin is a traitor. Uh, he's trying to steal the knock list, which uh, took me several viewings of this movie, especially as a teenager, to really get what the significant, what is the knock list, non official covers. This is basically all their undercover agents. And what their, like, what their identities are. So this would be if, you know, uh, the the knock list for Prague said, Ethan Hunt, Senator Walter, or something like that. I mean, but this would be spoiling all the agents out there. It's basically Skyfall's plot is what this movie is doing here, you know, well before Skyfall,
1: I was going the other way around really, isn't it?
0: This <laughs> like oh, Sky,
1: Skyfall's yes. Mission Impossible this, plot.
0: This totally ripped off Skyfall.
1: <laughs> oh god. They just ripped off Skyfall Mission Impossible, you know, was, I know it was 16 years earlier, but still, they just completely <laughs> ripped off Skyfall. Uh,
0: but the other thing that's a little bit different here is that the fact the team's already put together for him so they introduce all the team and then uh, uh, He basically, you know, gets his mission and then we immediately cut to him meeting the team. And one of the things that this movie doesn't get enough credit for is like the chemistry the cast has, especially for these members of the team, the ones that are basically killed off half an hour into the movie. These people all, it feels like a workplace, And they all have their own little rapport and everything, like in this scene where Phelps is going over the briefing, and is like, do we have any questions? And Ethan's like, you know, can we get a cappuccino machine? I don't know what you call this crap. And uh, Claire's like, oh, I made that coffee. And he's like, it's better than a sludge you made us in that barn in Prague. (laughs) And Jim's like, don't insult my wife's coffee. It's just, there's so much personality going on with all these characters. And maybe because they're killed off so soon, I mean, you don't really uh, notice it that quickly. But uh, we get some uh, introductions here to all the different characters we get. Uh, Jack, that's Emilio Estevez, who's constantly flirting with Kristen Scott Thomas. So there's a lot of, like, I don't know, sexual harassment in the workplace here. (laughs) (laughs) Not just just for
1: him. There's some sexual harassment against him, too, talking about his ass later on. Come on.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is a very loose uh, CIA here. (laughs) Uh, but uh, a couple of little setups for the gadgets and everything. Um, we have the the senator on TV that Ethan's going to impersonate. Uh, we get the gum, which is going to be very important twice in this movie. You know, the red and the green mash them together, and it'll have five seconds, and then it'll blow up. And I love how he that's where he says, the Osta lasagna, don't get any on you. And Tom is sort of looking at it, and he was almost dead serious, goes, Just don't chew it. (laughs) As if this has been a problem with Ethan before. (laughs) Uh, We'll cut it there before we get to the the mission part itself, which really needs to be its own section. But uh, yeah, so much development with the characters, which I think is one of the reasons why it's effective that they all get killed off. Because it doesn't feel like these are disposable characters. And we can look back on this now and be like, Oh, yeah, I mean, that's Kristen Scott Thomas in there. But at the time this movie came out, I mean, she done, what, four weddings and a funeral and a supporting role? I mean, this is pre-English patient. This is pre-everything you know, else that she ever did. Uh, so, I mean, it's not like you saw her and you're like, there's a big star there. But I think, at least personally, they do such a good job with these early scenes just making these characters feel like they're going to be around for the long haul. So it's a total surprise in, like, 20 minutes what's going to happen.
1: I always like movies when you kind of have actors that, you know, two actors that you like and they're kind of known for other roles and you just imagine them interacting. So, here's Gordon Bombay just, you know, interacting with Ethan Hunt, I guess. <laughs> it's like I watched uh, Mrs. Doubtfire the other day and it's kind of like, oh, there's Robin Williams with James Bond. Like, you know, that's just uh, something that happens. Um, I love... Like, the theme for this is just amazing. Like, as you said, everyone knows the Mission Impossible theme. It's So, it's very spy Um, you know, because the TV show came out after Dr. No, right? So, like, this doesn't predate yeah. James Bond. So, because right. uh, I think we talked about that a bit, didn't we, about the 60s kind of had this big spy, you know, TV show influx around then. So... Um, but I, I do, um, like the opening, you're talking about Emilio Estevev, I remember the one thing I remember watching this as a kid, one of the main things, is straight away, like, oh my god, that's, that's Emilio West, that's Gordon, Mumbai! And then I remember mm-hmm. waiting around for the credits to see his name in the credits, and then there was no name in the credits, and this was like 1996, no, was, you can't just jump on I IMDB. Wrong? Yeah, like, and I, <laughs> honestly, god, was like... Well, maybe it's his brother, or like, who is it? Like, <laughs> I just—I would rewind it so many times. I must be missing it. That is so Emilio Estevez. And like, and again, like you're nine years old, you don't realize there's things as uncredited performances. You can't look at IMDb to see your, you know, your thoughts confirmed. So, um, I always got so angry as a little kid. Like, you know, hey, that was definitely Gordon Pompey, but it's not in the credits. It mustn't be him. Um, but it's—I you ever honestly- get
0: arguments and fights at school? Yeah. Where you're like Give me the last tool, isn't Mission Possible? No, I don't even see him in the credits, the key is too
1: <laughs> Exactly. I got bashed like every single day. Shut up, Ed <laughs> Boom 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 boom. Um but yeah, I I everything you were saying like in terms of the the chemistry between them well, it is all great and you just feel like straight away this is a, a workplace. Um but the things that I have to laugh at is you know, the plane, how dated is this movie that you can just sit there and smoke on a plane like just <laughs> And <laughs> away, and you've got like these like super eight tapes that you do to watch a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love these flight attendants, like, you know, would you like to watch a movie? No, I prefer the theatre. And then it's just like, oh, are you sure you wouldn't like to watch a film from the Ukraine? I just want somebody sitting behind John Poitier going, oh, me, I want to watch a film from the Ukraine.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and he's it. like, well, I guess I'm stuck with the Beverly Hillbillies movie.
1: <laughs> but then it's kind of like, it's such an open-ended question, like, to turn around and like, your mission, should you choose to accept it? Like, be like, nah, I don't want to do that
0: one. Especially <laughs> since he's already like, well, we've already put together your team, so you don't have a choice.
1: <laughs> They're all just sitting in this room in Kiev. Oh, okay, so Phelps will be here any minute. Uh, just waiting along for Phelps. <laughs> While he's like in Paris you or think something like that. The
0: stewardess specified Cinema of Ukraine? What yes. if she said Aruba? <laughs> he might be in the Caribbean right now.
1: But then even like, you, this, will say, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. I'm the type of person who's sitting there with a pen and paper. Okay, right, so Kiev, this hotel. So this guy's got the <laughs> list. No, don't self-destruct! Oh, shit, I can't... Oh, no. <laughs> I don't know what hotel I'm going to go to. I didn't write it down properly. <laughs> like, it's not a very foolproof way of getting this, you know, information to agents. Like, it will self-destruct if you choose to accept... I want James Bond. Like, he <laughs> <come> walks <laughs> into M's office. Come in, 007. We have a mission for you. Should you choose to accept it? <laughs> it's like, what was that, They're M? Like,
0: what if Phelps <laughs> just work? walked into a... Phelps walks into Kitridge's office and he goes, mm, I'd rather not. And he's like, Oh, that was the only Super 8 tape we made. We gotta go back to the editing trailer. We gotta piece all the shots together
1: again. I could do my voiceover. You know how expensive it is for studio time in 1996? I was like, Your mission to you is accepted. A nuclear bomb will destroy us. Oh, not a nuclear bomb again. Next. Oh, but you're the only agent we've got available. Oh, shit. Boom. <laughs> It's just like there there's definitely ways about this that can fuck up. Like, you know, maybe that could be like a, a plot thing in the in the Mission Impossible world. Yes, World War Two started when uh, an agent didn't decide to stop Germany invading Poland, so uh that's how the war started. Nine like eleven happened. We could have stopped it, but our agent was on holiday, didn't get the tape. Uh, so like that's that would actually be kind of funny. Like if they just poke fun at this like easily skippable mission list. Um, but even though when it self destructs, like this is smoke on a plane, like Jesus Christ. <laughs> Why didn't nine eleven happen more often? Like these planes were so easily take over, like smoke coming everywhere, just like chilling. Uh, anyway, enough of the nine eleven jokes. Um so <laughs> I I actually really like, and I'm not just saying this because I love the West a bit, but I like his character. Like, just kind of this, mm-hmm. what is he, like a geeky computer guy, but then he just gets up in elevators. Isn't that in um Speed? Like, uh, uh, Jeff Daniels' character is kind of like that, isn't he? He's kind of like yeah. the, the bomb, he diffuses Expert, the bombs, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. So... Yeah, I do like it when they're watching this clip of this senator guy and they're using Netscape Navigator. Do you remember Netscape (laughs) Navigator?
0: I didn't until you said that.
1: That, to me, reminds me of the very first time I used to use the internet. We used to go to the library after school. I was like, I don't know, 10. And the only browser option you had was Netscape Navigator. (laughs) Oh, the good old 90, late 90s. Oh, I love it. Um, but, yeah, I think I've gone over everything that I was going to say about it. I'm still sort of understanding the movie at this point.
0: Uh, well, it doesn't get easier in the next sequence. You really have to pay attention to that mission briefing about he's going to steal the knock list or whatever. But this is also just exactly the way that the TV show would go. They'd be given their mission. I mean, he was even watching a couple episodes this week just so I was going to bed. And... They would start their mission, and all of a sudden, they're they're playing characters or in disguises. And I'm like, so this guy's trying to get into the bank vault, but why did he need to get in the bank vault? I'm like, oh, this general guy here was he trying to start a coup? Is this about something? Like you you can't really even recall because it goes by so quickly, and then you have to sort of follow it throughout the course of the mission to sort of understand it. But just this huge let's throw you right into this huge reception or whatever we have barely even had a setup and, and again when i say like oh we're not given this information i think that's a good thing in this movie i mean nothing's really spelled out for you and it's a movie that makes you think but you're thrown here you're like okay so he's playing the senator where are they going to go from here and we haven't been given this is what we're going to do it's just listen we need to stop the guy from getting the knock list you're going to be, uh, you know, uh, surveying the room and following Galitzin, Hannah. And uh, you're going to get him downstairs, Sarah. And Ethan, you're going to make sure to photograph him. And then Claire, you wait out by the car. And that's kind of <laughs> all that it is. But it's not until you see it you start to get, well, what's the purpose of these roles? Like they intentionally – there's a lot of information that's intentionally left out of this movie that's effective later on. And talk about stuff that's on repeat viewings. Uh, one of the first shots we get here of, like, Hannah on the stairs – and, you know, she kind of tints her glasses so that we can see like what the stuff that uh, Sarah's going to spray on Galitzin's head. And later on, the scene is going to come in the restaurant with the aquarium where Ethan's like, why was there another team there? When you watch this, it's so clear to you. But there is no way anybody picks up on this the first time, just the little shot of this waiter or whatever behind Hannah just sort of looking at her as she reaches for her glasses. And you can start to see that pop up with the drunks later on, too. Like, that's one of the things that if you rewatch this movie, you'd be like, ah, I totally see that now. Mm. Uh, but when Ethan comes in, I just love where where the guy that's greeting him, who's obviously, you know, not part of this mission, he's somebody official there at the, this, I don't know, is this supposed to be like the Prague embassy or something? I, I never uh, quite... Didn't they say it's
1: you, is it the, um, they said it's some embassy, some sort of embassy in mm. Prague. The the and there's a the reason American why embassy. this it's the American embassy apparently that we go I'm just reading yeah
0: in. and this Kentucky senator or whatever he is is very important there and this guy that greets him is like how was the opera senator and he goes it was boring <laughs> 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 and I wonder if like Ethan was intended to say that or if he was like uh, I was supposed to be at an opera uh, but this guy here is great too because he's like so excited well let me see if I can get you through this reception line here and then as soon as Sarah comes in she's like yo you don't remember me do you she basically pushes this guy aside and again if you watch really closely you can see the look on this guy's face like excuse me miss (laughs) and then he's just immediately out of the shot (laughs) and i mean this thing they do here at the elevator is great too because uh you know i've never actually taken the time to freeze frame uh but when they're trying to get in the elevator and they do the fingerprint scan and obviously jack's in above the elevator and he's starting to hack into their computers or whatever and All this hacking on the Unix stuff that they're doing. Uh, But very complicated 1996 stuff. It's a Unix system. I know this.
1: Clever, Jack.
0: Uh, But um, it starts scanning through uh, all these faces like the computer showing you this person this person all of their i guess photo ids the very first one i saw is peter graves who played jim phelps in the original mission impossible and then you scan through a few more of them and you can see some other cast members from the mission impossible tv show whose pictures come up on that monitor there which uh, i would have to go back to freeze frame at all to see if they're all in there but you can definitely notice with, like peter james
1: freeze. bond that would be quite funny <laughs> <It's like Peter laughs> <R. G. Brosnan. laughs>
0: you gotta imagine like charlie sheen martin <laughs> sheen <laughs>
1: Charlie Conway, Goldberg. Oh. Uh,
0: William Ma- Ma- mapother is that how you spell his, <laughs> spell his name?
1: <laughs> Lex, Tim, uh, De Niro, <laughs> Rexy the Rex,
0: Enrique. Enrique!
1: <laughs> Enrique! <laughs> uh,
0: but I love just the, the personality that Tom Cruise gives here, like when the guard comes up and he's asking for uh, Chris and Scott Thomas' ID and everything, and Tom Cruise, like, just being the ever-snotty senator, is like, now, uh, why are you out of your uniform this evening? And, like, the guy's like, uh, we were told to not wear our <laughs> uniform, sir. And he gives, like, this, Tom Cruise gives, like, this eye roll, which is great, too. Uh, and then when they start having this conversation it's hilarious, where it's like, tell me, do you have anybody on your staff named Jack? It's like, oh, yeah, very unreliable fellow, if I remember. <laughs> Constantly late, <laughs> biting their tongues. And he's like, give me a break, Pops. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they eventually get in there, um, and uh, they get down to the basement. So this is where the Noclip is supposed to be stolen. Ethan's setting up his glasses camera. They're propping it up. They're getting in position. Uh, Ethan mentions about the date with Sarah's off, so, you know, There's still the flirtation thing going on There, this very inappropriate sexual harassment workplace at IMF. And uh, they can't get out of the elevator. So the elevator's been taken over. And here's one thing I've never been able to explain. Like, I have seen this movie dozens of times. I have never been able to figure out why Jack's like, I can't get the elevator doors open. And then Jim's like, Ethan, I'm opening the elevator doors. I'm like, when did Jim get control? Mm. And why is nobody questioning this? It's it's something. And I'm if they can do it,
1: why why is Jack even in the elevator shaft? Yeah, John Voigt can just yeah, do exactly. this.
0: <laughs> I, I just I've never been able to explain that. Uh, so they end up taking their exit here. Uh, Ethan goes out, and of course, because this is a workplace full of sexual harassment and lots of sex, <laughs> Ethan and Sarah basically start having sex on the street as a cover. <laughs> Not that far, but they're we'll definitely very here. touchy. Yeah, <laughs> what, having sex on the street with Tom Cruise?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you haven't. I mean, <laughs> Tom Cruise just comes up. Oh, come on, Ben, let's just have sex. And, oh, all right, Tom. All right. I yeah, those rumors were true. <laughs> it's not Kevin Spacey, but I mean, you know.
0: Uh. Um, but yeah, like, he's getting very touchy. She's getting very touchy with him, but this is all part of the cover. It's just it's done so subtly that I'm always fascinated by that. That it's like, this is probably just the way these, I mean, when you read up on real spies, this is what they are. and you're
1: know, one. My, I was just going to really quickly interrupt you and be rude. But, like, can, <laughs> can, can CIA agents or IMF agents, like, claim sexual harassment? Like, could she, like, in five years' time just be like, oh, no. he took advantage of me? It's like, dude, you're undercover. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I didn't ask for it. <laughs> Sorry. That's yeah, inappropriate, Yeah, I mean, ben.
0: this is... Like one of the best shows uh, on television that's now off, The Americans, which hopefully you'll hear an episode with me and Noah very soon talking about the Americans season finale. But that show, especially the last season, is so much about people like spies, basically, their entire job is just have a lot of sex and (laughs) use sex to get what you want out of people. And you can kind of see that very subtly in this PG movie here with the way that they're touching with each other, the way that, that. you know they are with other people with the way that ethan is later on with uh you know a certain villain in this movie that this is just the way spies are so i don't know if that was intentional it's, just, it's something that is going on a lot in this movie um there's control that's lost with the elevator so here we get jack's death and this was the big surprise uh if you had no idea that emilio estevez was in this movie going in you may have just been like well i must not have read the poster or looked at the trailers. As soon as you see Emilio Estevez, that's why I think it was so important to make him the first one you introduce, because you're catching the audience off guard. Oh, Emilio Estevez in this movie, but he's next to Tom Cruise, the biggest star in here. I know John Voight twenty years earlier was a big star, but at the time that you know this movie came out, I mean John Voight, this sort of started a comeback for him. People recognize Emilio Estevez, and for him to be the first one killed off in this movie twenty minutes in, that's I think what the big shock is here. Uh, plus, it's a pretty gruesome death, too. I mean, this is this is up there with you know, uh, probably the most gruesome deaths in the series. This is like a Jurassic Park-level death, too. Uh, Phelps gets up and leaves. There's a weird shot of him knocking over his chair where he stops and he turns around, which I never quite understood that. Uh, when Ethan's outside, you see the drunks come out. And, and again, there's moments that you're going to notice later on where they're holding their ears. But you only notice it on repeat viewings as well. Uh, Ethan... Uh, wants to go after the list because Galitzin's out there now. Phelps is like, I'm being followed. I'm on the bridge. Abort the mission. Ethan refuses to abort. So he's trying to go after Galitzin, but then there's a gunshot, and on their Dick Tracy watch cam, he looks (laughs) down and he sees blood all over Jim's hands and rushes up to the bridge. And this is where Tom Cruise is running, running, really (laughs) fast running, (laughs) all the way up to the bridge. And he goes over, and as soon as he sees that, like, Jim is dead, that's when he calls abort. It's too late, though, because Sarah, Chris and Scott Thomas, uh, at this point, probably one of the other fairly recognizable actors in the movie, although not famous, goes off screen to follow Galitzin. Uh She ends up getting stabbed off screen again. Like the deaths that happen off screen here are great, too, because you're not going to know that she's dead until Ethan finds her later. And you're seeing everybody else killed one by one, and we got the car bomb going off here. So you're assuming Hannah and Claire are dead at this point. And I just remember at the time, even though it had been spoiled for me that John Voight was still alive in this movie. And if you watch the trailers, you can see, like, okay, this, this Claire character, she seems to be in a lot of shots in the trailer that I haven't seen yet in the movie. Uh, you can kind of guess. But, I mean, I just remember being like, well, they just killed the entire team. Like, where does this movie even go from here? Um, and Ethan quickly goes over to the pay phone and there's, uh, once we get to, I think it's ghost protocol, there's a cool little code thing that he does here on the phone that they bring back like, you know, five movies or four movies later, uh, his, his code that he has to give to get in. And he's eventually talking to Kitridge. And the big surprise here is when he's saying like, my team is dead <laughs> very <laughs> dramatically <laughs> as only Tom Cruise can. Uh, he goes, all right, maybe at this restaurant in one hour, he goes, you're in Prague, like just all surprised. And he's just like one hour. And that's the first thing that's, I think done very cleverly to put you on the scent of Kitridge being the villain instead of Phelps. We're going to find out later on. Uh, so that, I mean, that whole mission there, this is a mission impossible episode, but then killing the team off. I mean, well, I'll let you kind of cover this first, but I'll talk a little bit more about like why this was so significant when the movie came out.
1: Um, I mean, yeah, this is I said to you, I remember so much. Milo Estevev getting killed in an elevator, um, but I don't get why he doesn't move. Like, there's these weird spike things, which there's, like, big gaps in between them. He just kind of looks up and goes, oh, I'm about to get stabbed in the eye. Um, so, poor old Gordon Bombay's dead. Um, they won't be coming back to fight Iceland. Was that the same year? Mighty Ducks 2? I think that was 1996, wasn't it? So.
0: No, that was 94,
1: was it 94? Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, three. Yeah, I think three was 96.
1: Oh, no wonder he couldn't coach, uh, Eaton Hall. Uh, <laughs> he was, he was in an elevator getting stabbed to death. Um, yeah, you just don't see all this coming. I think that's like really great, as you were saying, and just kind of that one by one they're all getting killed. And I, I forgot that they all get killed. I just thought it was only Amelia West who gets killed. Um, but it's kind of, I, it, it, the way, it, it, there's some weird editing in this film, the way they kind of just like will do a fade into the next scene. I don't know if you notice that. Like it's just, I don't know if that was trying to keep in the TV style film or if this is just what we had in this type of movie in the 90s. It's just these weird sort of fade transition scenes in some of them. But um yeah, I, I have to go back and watch the, the drunks touching their ears and things like that. Um and the weird stabbing, which... That knife, I don't understand how Jean Reno gets that back later on, but um I like it when he goes to the payphone and he puts that thing over the speaker. Um Just, you know, very technologically advanced. None of that's dated in this film at all, is it? The technology. <laughs> that's, that's one thing. This film doesn't really feel that old, but, I mean, when you see the technology, it definitely does.
0: It's another thing that I think this movie belonged in 1996, because I tried to think about other movies after this that used computers and stuff like that and I don't know I feel like once you got to 97 it got a little bit more polished Uh, this I think maybe stands out a little bit more in that they used real technology movies prior to this when you saw computers it was very over the top and cartoony and you still were at the point where most people didn't have computers in their house so you look at the movie Hackers that came out the year prior to this which I think I've already mentioned on an episode I absolutely hate that movie And one of the reasons is because they're presenting these teenagers hacking computers and the graphics on there looks like animation, like no computer would ever look like that. But people didn't have computers at the time. And one interesting thing I found just researching for this uh, episode was that, uh, you know, they're using Apple laptops in this movie. And that came as a result of a real deal that they struck with Apple. Apple, who was like bottom of the barrel like you know down the drain flush the company down the toilet at this point it was dead they paired up with mission impossible as a way to kind of get the brand out there to revive it so i think as a result of that they're using real computers and it maybe looks more dated because of that because if we look at like movies that follow this like face off even we covered last year. Granted, that movie is supposed to be a little bit sci-fi, but I mean, the computers in that don't look like 1996 or 1997 computers. And when we get to Mission Impossible 2, it still kind of looked realistic, but again, almost a little bit more futuristic. This may be the only time we ever saw realistic 1990s computers in a 1990s movie.
1: And, I mean, look, let's be honest, even if you grew up in the 90s and remember the computers, they weren't realistic in real life. They were just, like, giant bricks mm-hmm. that, like, you connected yeah. through to AOL and uh you've got mail and Netscape Navigator, uh, which... God, is it, does that still exist? Can you actually still get... I'm going to Google that shit. I want Netscape Navigator back. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hashtag bring back Netscape Navigator.
1: <laughs> Apparently it's a, a thing, is it? Um... Oh, it's a discontinued property, proprietary web browser. Aww. Hashtag rip Netscape Navigator. Aww. <laughs> uh,
0: one thing, just to cover the whole team dying here, that I think is interesting. Now, as I said, none of these characters were from the TV show other than Jim Phelps, but I think this was the big deal. It wasn't just killing, killing all the team off. That's a nice surprise where you just don't see it coming. Killing Jim Phelps off, this is what was controversial at the time, and it's interesting if you look at the reviews for this, which we'll get into later on. This movie didn't have great reviews. And I remember even at the time it came out, like I said, I didn't get to see it right away. I had to kind of wait till somebody would go with me. I remember just the general feedback. People were like, oh, yeah, it was a pretty good movie. And then other people would be like, ah, the movie wasn't so great. But definitely people, like older people I remember, were always talking about, oh, they totally disrespected the TV show. When really, if you look at these movies, I mean, this is the closest we've ever gotten to TV show. And it's probably arguably the best TV show adaptation. You mentioned the other ones we had at the time. I mean, let's go even further after that. I mean, what are we going to compare this to? Starsky and Hutch? <laughs> I mean, are there other TV show adaptations out there that really treated it with this much respect and, and were this intelligent and really recaptured what it had him. And I can't think of any out there. It's just amazing that there was so much anger, which really just came down to Phelps. Uh, And I mentioned how Peter Graves, at one point they wanted him to be in this. Um, We're talking about probably before Brian De Palma was attached as a director. Maybe Tom Cruise was on the project. Maybe he wasn't. But uh, I know at one point they were talking about making this with all of the team members. So you would have had You know, Jim Phelps and then the other characters that still existed from either the 60s or 80s TV show, those would have been the characters that killed off. But Tom Cruise, who's the new guy in the movie, would be the one that survives. Uh, Ultimately, they still wanted to keep just Jim Phelps, and they wanted Peter Graves, like the star of the TV show, in here. And he turned them down for it because he didn't like what they did with Jim Phelps' character. Now, I can imagine that if you had Jim Phelps, the real Jim Phelps, in here, and he turns out to be the villain, yeah, people would get upset. I didn't really see a big deal with it, even though I only was vaguely familiar with Jim Phelps as a character. I mean, I remembered, like, as a child watching this, and you could have told me, oh, yeah, that's probably the same guy from the original show, but maybe I wasn't as tied to that. But then as I was watching it this time, I thought to myself, if we hit 2031 and they make a big screen movie of 24— (laughs) And you have some actor in 2031 playing Jack Bauer, and Jack (laughs) Bauer turns out to be the villain, and you kill him 20 minutes in the movie. I'd probably be upset too. So I can kind of see where those fans are coming from. But I think just personally, because you took a different actor, because you took John Voight in this, you don't tie it as being canon from the TV show. Even though I think the movie in some ways was intended to be canon with the TV show, having a different actor makes it more acceptable, I think.
1: I think that a lot of it depends on the TV show remake. Like, I mean, I think a lot of these ones where they're remaking stuff from the sixties. I mean, to me, I just you see it all as a completely different canon. I mean, I think sometimes it's just hard to connect them. I mean, you're saying like a, a film that kind of did it well. I mean, it's I never watched Charlie's Angels as a TV show, but the mo- the first movie at least was pretty well received and pretty well accepted as you know a good you know retake of the um the TV series. Then the sequel came along and that was rubbish. But, um, you know, I think that's the one that I was just thinking off the top of my head. I mean, I know you and I both like Lost in Space, but that wasn't mm-hmm. very well received when that was released. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely see the comparison. I mean, and let's be honest, if they recast Jack Bauer as anyone but keep it that enough for me is enough to... <laughs> Invade the US or whichever country makes 24. Like, I'll be Prime Minister by then, won't I? I can just invade. Why are you invading the US, Mr. Prime Minister? Because they remade 24 without Jack Bauer. Well, they did, but it was a different actor. It was Justin Bieber playing Jack. Okay, fair enough. That's enough for war. Keeping it
0: Canadian. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look, uh, somebody's never seen the TV show for this. It, it absolutely had no bearing on my knowledge on this i mean one that i kind of thought was because the fugitive was a tv series wasn't it so of course that yeah. came out about three years before this um so yeah i mean you've, you've always kind of got to think about the original fans but i mean it's, it's different now i think if you made this now uh i mean i don't think many people are going to make movies based off 1960s tv shows you know you're making movies based on you know miami vice and uh yeah. you know things like that where it's it's a little bit more in some of our era's minds but uh yeah i could definitely see that's a good comparison you make there with like how this angers the fans
0: and i think it's led up a lot over the years where people they kind of just see it as a great twist now because the movie series is separate itself from it um i'm really excited to talk about this because you talk about keeping a Canadian here. We're about to be introduced to the villain who actually turns out to not be the villain of the movie uh, and a great Canadian actor here. So Kit Ridge is introduced in the restaurant scene here, played by Henry Cherney, who uh, I think most people would recognize him either from Mission Impossible or Clear and Present Danger, which I'd love to cover the Jack Ryan movies too one day. Uh, But he's one of these Canadian actors that like anybody who's watched TV or even TV movies in Canada has probably seen him pop up in a million things. I, I just can't get over how good he is in this movie. And I'm not just saying this because he's Canadian. Like, I remember being surprised probably by the time Mission Impossible 3 came out and I look on IMDb, I'm like, oh, this Ridge was Can- Woo!
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even Colin's just like, woo! <laughs> we get a sneeze count on these episodes. Well, I think we do. We need the sneeze count. Jamie's been quiet this episode. <laughs>
0: uh, but... I just remember being surprised almost 10 years after this movie came out, realizing he was Canadian. I, I just think that Kid Rich is amazing in this movie. I love him as a character. I love Henry Tierney as an actor. I, I love this scene here. I, I'm only going to cover a couple of scenes here, just because I think this restaurant one is so great. Again, giving so much plot. Uh, the first thing I just want to say that's really hilarious is this restaurant, which is all built around this massive aquarium. Did you catch the name of the restaurant? Uh,
1: the aquarium or something, wasn't it? No.
0: Akvarium, which oh,
1: ak-varium. I
0: don't – maybe that is the real word, like the real Czech word for, um, you know, aquarium. But to me, it's almost like if you're trying to impersonate a language, it's like, what's aquarium in this language? It would be Akvarium, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds too obvious to be aquarium. Uh, but, I mean, the restaurant looks fantastic. and I mean, this stunt that's going to come up is – not really. It's, it's not really. It is
1: Czech. Sorry, it is Czech for a queer. I've just done the this, translation. Here we go. Aquarium.
0: So this, this isn't like uh, ethnically. Um, <laughs> ethnically, uh, uh, what would the word be? Um, Inconsiderate here.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, but I don't know. It's a nice aquarium. <laughs> it looks beautiful on screen. But Come there's so
1: Aquarium. So you can see the feces. <laughs>
0: um i love the way that the back and forth goes for these characters here because again these are two spies and they play it like two spies the way that ethan is at first like he's so depressed and uh kidridge is very sympathetic like he even's like i'm so so sorry for your loss i know how much jim meant to you uh personally and professionally He i've watched this movie so many times and he is so sincere in that scene and then he just slowly does the reveal of like uh all right well here let's get to the point here you know you're a traitor and you know uh you know i'm gonna put you away for life and you, you, you know you're gonna go back and uh, we're gonna interrogate you and we're gonna kill you or whatever uh, but the way this reveal happens is so suddenly like the ethan's just i don't even i don't know how he pieces it together because i don't even see him looking around the room and he's just suddenly like why was there another team and kidridge plays it so cool and he's like i don't quite follow you ethan And then the the way that Ethan just immediately, like, well, then why don't you follow me around the room a little? (laughs) (laughs) The camera angles, which is very, like, 1960s, and it stays angled for, like, the rest of the back and forth scene between them. And he's like, you know, the waiter behind Hannah, you know, two o'clock, the drunks on the pier, four o'clock. And he's pointing out all these people that when you go back and watch the movie, you can see in those earlier scenes, they're here in the restaurant still. And he goes, why are you worried about me? Kidridge starts to lay out that, you know that there have been leaks in IMF, and there's a mole, and there's this great arrogance with Kittridge that comes out here, uh, where especially when they start talking about you know an arms dealer named Max, and he's almost like playing Ethan like I'm not a hundred percent sure if you're the guy yet, and then as soon as Ethan says the arms dealer, is like yeah that's right okay it's like now I got you, and it's just <laughs> it's so combative in this arrogant cocky way between these two guys, and yeah uh, eventually he you know. Uh, starts to lose it with him and we get the gum that comes back here, which is great. Uh, the red light, green light, we toss it across the room. And then this stunt here, which has never really been properly recognized as a great mission impossible stunt. People usually look at like the train stunt later on or, or the black vault scene, but this was like the original crazy stunt and to blow up this aquarium. I mean, it basically, there's a great featurette you can watch on the DVD or the blu-ray, This was like one shot. And they needed to do it all in one take. And it was one of these things where like, if you don't run quickly enough, when this aquarium blows, the water is just going to wash the water and the glass is just going to wash you away. And Tom Cruise had to do this one for real. And what you see of this doing slow-mo, none of it CGI. I mean, they actually blew a giant aquarium and had all the windows blown out of the restaurant and the water rushing. And it was one take exactly as you saw, which just looks incredible. Uh, One other thing I just uh, like in the scene, the way that they set it up here with the family debt. He's already mentioning about the money in your parents' bank account. When he says, you know, I could tell you're very upset. This was like the trailer moment. It's like, Kidridge, you've never seen me very upset. Again, the cameras are getting more and more angled here. Uh, I do have a question, though, as to... They wanted to set up this thing to steal the knock list. And I don't know if this is something that confused you or if this is just me picking the movie part. I kind of have a theory on this. They knew that this Job 314 or whatever, this Max, was going to use Galison to steal the knock list. Um, The only way to do this was to do this whole mole hunt, but the only team they assigned to it was Phelps' team. So that would explain why Kittredge selected the team for him, but that means that Kittredge already was suspecting somebody in the team, but yet he says in this scene, well, once, as you said yourself, Ethan, you're the one who survived. I wonder if he knew it was part of Jim's team here, and that's why he assigned them, because there's no other reason he assigned them this mission if he's like, well, it could be anybody in IMF. Well, then you have to assign the same mission to everybody else. Uh, but we'll move on a little bit from this, too, uh, because after Ethan escapes, he goes to the safe house here. Uh, I like the cool little spy trick he uses here with the light bulb crushing it on the floor so we could hear it later on. Then he gets on the laptop, and <laughs> 1996 technology here, trying to find all these... Uh, what did you... I can't remember what you called them. This is like pre-forums... Like discussion groups that you subscribe to? What were those? Oh, discussion
1: groups? <laughs> you just said that. <laughs> Everything um, worked. Yeah, they, I know what you're talking about, but um, yeah. it was, yeah, it was kind of like, and for those in, uh, at home, a forum was
0: what were well, you talked to him before Reddit. Um, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like he just starts searching all these groups and then eventually he spots like the, the Bible on the, the shelf, which I missed earlier that something's going to come later on when they're making fun of Jim when he was on his recruiting assignment and he's like, they put me up at the Drake Hotel in Chicago. Uh, but he finds the Bible here, which he doesn't look at where it's from yet. And he was like, Oh, it might be Job 314. So he turns there and he just, he literally just spends hours and this is one of the little details I like in spy movies, when you can take something that should be so mundane, and it's interesting just because you wouldn't have thought this is what a spy would have to do. He basically stays up all night, every single language, the the discussion groups on the Book of Job and looking for maxes. Now, he should be getting a whole bunch of undelivered mail coming back (laughs) at him, but maybe that's pre-that ever-existing. And then he wakes up, and here's my favorite scene that we have to talk about here. Uh... (laughs) When he's drifting off and then all of a sudden he hears the light bulbs and who walks in the door? Uh, But the ghost of Jim Phelps. And what does Jim Phelps say? Alan. (laughs) Which I know (laughs) you were thinking.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Where is the Yeah,
0: (laughs) I'm like, I, I know we talked about doing the Jurassic Park thing where we can just, you know, constantly like cut different lines in there with... All the other, Enrique, instead of the Raptors <laughs> saying Alan, he's saying Enrique or whatever else. That's but, Cooper. Like, we gotta, yeah, that's Cooper. But we, we totally have to do something here where, you know, Jim Phelps walks in, and all you hear is Alan, <laughs> the Raptors, like, Ethan, because it is the exact same scene. But, of course, he finally wakes up out of his sleep, and Claire's there, and this is what explains that that scene wasn't so dumb in the first place, Ben, because even Ethan Hunt, the world's greatest spy, or second world's greatest spy, because he's not James Bond, even he's like holding a gun to Claire, and he's blinking his eyes. He's like, wait a second, wait a second. Like, he still doesn't know what's going on, which if you've ever kind of woken up him in that half-awake state, that's the way it is. Claire's freaking out. She's like, oh, 400, 4 o'clock, 430, 4, oh, 100. She's just over and over again repeating the same thing. He feels her up here again. <laughs> and even as – maybe it was because I was a teenager at the time, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, even uh, at a young age, you visibly notice as he's like patting her down that he – Pauses a little bit longer underneath her breasts when he's checking her for a weapon, <laughs> and he's pinning well, her down on the sour. bed. you're like, going to
1: be very thorough.
0: Yeah, you do, uh, especially when it comes to your boss's wife. Apparently, <laughs> uh, there's a brief scene here when he's talking to her, and uh, you know he's saying, "This is what's happened. I'm being set up," and she's like, "Oh, I'll go to Kitridge and I'll tell him that it's a mistake." And he's like, "If you're if you're not dead too, he's going to assume that you're with me." They finally get the reply from Amex at a discussion group pre-form discussion group uh, who sends a signal and they're going to meet so we'll stop there before we get to the meeting with Max because even that scene alone that, that one just like a kid, scene so much more to talk about than that one
1: I want to eat at that restaurant because that looks cool I, mean, I don't want to get blown up and swim with the fish um the the like varium um but I, I the one thing I noticed is all the dead fish on the street and I've written poor fish uh, <laughs>
0: You know, we just watched the entire team get killed and you didn't bat an eye. Those poor fish! (laughs) (laughs) That
1: could have fed like a. That could have fed the village in Africa. Like, you know, that's a lot of fish. Tom Cruise. Um, but why, why don't they just like arrest him straight away, search his pockets? They're all spies here, right? Like, I mean, they're not meant to trust each other. So like, you would assume that straight away you would arrest him and empty his pockets out, you know? Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's a spy thing that they just somehow leave them with gadgets. Um, yeah, I, I mean, the scene's great. I didn't realize that it was done in one shot. That's pretty awesome. Um, and Tom Cruise runs, doesn't he? So, you know, he's yeah. got to run away from something. Running, running! <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like when he's, um, he's searching or he's, he's emailing off. What's the email? It's like, um, max at job314. There's no dot com yeah. in there. There's, there's nothing yeah. in there that, that remotely is an email address. Um,
0: <laughs> that's it's all so... discussion books of the book of Job. <laughs> and like,
1: who, who joins that? Oh, welcome to the discussion group of book of Job. Is that like a thing? <laughs> Like, I'm not, I'm honestly not being disrespectful out there to people who are religious and who read the Bible and stuff. But, like, are there legitimately, like, groups out there where it's like, oh, man, Job, the book is the best part of the Bible. Let's all talk about stuff together. Like, I mean, there could be. There
0: there are groups out there that discuss dressing your cats in tutus. (laughs) All right? I guarantee (laughs) there are... You're a member. You're clearly a member (laughs) of that group. (laughs) Yes. I've got a hamster, so mine's a hamster in a tiara. But you have a hamster?
1: I didn't know this I about have a, you. Ha- I,
0: ha- I had two hamsters. One of them died recently. Funny Aww. story about the dead hamster. Sorry to say. It's not a funny story.
1: There. That's mean. Oh, my hamster oh. died recently. Funny story about it dying.
0: <laughs> These are I've I've had hamsters on and off I've got some I've got a lot of funny stories about hamsters like getting one that had babies that I was told two weeks earlier when I got it from the store that it was a boy so when I see little things squirming underneath it I thought that it was some type of parasite that had it attached itself to its belly but with this one I had two sisters and uh, you know one of them was fat and lazy and the other one was thin and very active and uh, Jamie yeah, had been complaining baby. for like. <laughs> Jamie had been complaining for two days that, uh, you know, the, the hamster cage. Yeah, exactly. What she said in the background, like, smells like somebody died in here. And, and she'd been complaining, oh, change the cage. I'm like, oh, I'm really tired. I'll change it tomorrow. She's home one day. She's like, I can't take it tomorrow. I'm going to change it. She's opening it, literally thinking, smells like somebody died in here. One of the hamsters is moving. She pokes it, <laughs> it's dead. <laughs> She messages me, of course. She's like, I really don't know how to tell you this. I'm so sorry. One of your hamsters is dead. And I assume, was it the fat, lazy one? She's like, no, it was the thin one. <laughs>
1: I just I just love the the care factor. Like I can just imagine she's gonna come home one day, you've been looking after Casper all day, but you're I I don't know, you're watching a movie and then like you don't know what he's doing and Jane, Oh sounds like something died in here. It's like, oh I'm going to bed <laughs> next morning. Where's Casper? Oh, I don't know. Oh there he is oh poking with a stick. <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. oh, my God. First of all, in this house, like if you ever change Casper's diaper Smelling like something died in here? That's not unusual in this house. So a dead nabby. hamster would not have
1: come to mind. I hope it is nabby. There's a hamster in there. It's dead. Uh- <laughs> did, did your iguana or whatever that lizard you had once, like, eat your hamster?
0: No, oh, that, was, that was just babysitting the neighbor's lizard.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh- I just, I just love the fact that you're a member of like the Hamsters Wear Tiaras forum. Um Oh,
0: you know. I'm not. I'm not actually. In case anybody's. I'll sure.
1: I'll <laughs> sure you're not. Login name, you know, Whiskers twenty three. Uh <laughs> This week, I put a tiara on little Whiskers. Oh, he looks so cute. Sadly, his sister died. Hashtag rip, Hamster two. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> Hello to all our um listeners who are in the Bible forum groups. This week in the Bible, I read it again. Nothing new. Um, like Sorry, I mean like this hasn't been updated in 2000 years. Like when's the sequel coming out? I'm waiting for it. Um <laughs> I'm just offending a lot of people. So, where are we up to? Oh, right. Yes. He's sending out a lot of emails. I love the graphics of emails in 1996 that they like zoom, and they're like and that weird little image. Like, how, that's the peak of graphics in 1996. That's how an email gets sent. Um, and he, how many languages does Ethan Hunt know? Is this a thing? Cause he's a spy. They've got to know all the yeah, languages.
0: I, don't know if they officially say, but, I mean, a lot, because he has... You see him speak other languages even throughout the course of the series.
1: Yeah. um, And, yeah, getting touchy-feely. Again, 1996, hashtag me too. Uh, Can you just imagine if this was released in 2008? Oh, oh, what was that movie a year or two ago that was released and there was like an action film with like a man and woman in it, but there was a poster of like the man hitting a woman or something like that. Cause she was evil or something like that. But then everyone complained it was sexist. That was only a recent thing. Uh, I can't remember what it was, but even like the actress in it defended, it. it was like, Hey, this is part of the movie. I'm evil. I need to get like, you know, killed yeah. anyway. But, um, so <laughs> this wouldn't happen. Um, Yes, I think that's where we're up to, aren't we? Yes, we are uh oh when the when they get a message, I know you've complained a bit about computers making beeping noises, but when they get yeah. that like, that message beep it will beep beep beep, beep, beep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what happens if you get an email in nineteen ninety six uh,
0: so the meeting that comes up here, though, this is something else once we get it's gonna be fun once we get to four to see if you'll you'll pick up on the same thing because there's gonna be a call back to this here uh he gets picked up by. Two crazy-looking henchmen. These these aren't exactly like Bond henchmen here, but I kind of like these guys, anyways. Uh, they give him Venom's mask to put on, <laughs> uh, and they say this is the price of admission. Uh, so he has to put this mask on, and uh, you know, eventually they take him to see Max. So when he shows up there, he's like. Um, I thought I was going to see Max. So like, well, you misunderstood. Nobody sees Max. And he's like, well, then I don't really have anything I need to say here. And uh, like, you know, if Max doesn't like what you have to say, then eventually he's like, oh, I'll take my chances. So they take, you know, his mask off, and he sees Max. And I'm curious to see if you saw this coming, or again, if this is as big of a surprise in 2018 as it was in 1996 to basically see an elderly, at least a near senior citizen woman. In really a leave Vanessa suits.
1: Redgrave alone.
0: Yeah, I'm not knocking her. I mean, she's great in this movie. Uh, but th- this is the reveal of the big villain, this arms dealer they're talking about. It is 50. 50- How old was Vanessa Redgrave when this came out? Can you... Uh, thirty
1: seven ninety six That She would have been
0: 59? No, yeah, so 69. 15, 69 59. No, 69. 69 years old? Okay. I was going to say, she looks pretty good for 69. But, 59. Um, 59 years old and a 59 year old woman is the big villain of this movie and that at the time again was just such a big surprise i think this movie doesn't get enough credit partly because i think that's kind of lost now i mean it's not unusual to have movies like this i think at the time this came out i can't think of any movie that used any older woman as a villain outside of maybe willow i don't know if you ever saw willow with val kilmer and warwick davis
1: um absolutely i watch it every second thursday
0: <laughs> it's it's a great movie. I mean, it's George Lucas and Ron Howard, but uh, no, that's, I think, the only time that I had ever seen a movie where it was an old lady as the villain. Uh, so this was, you know, kind of a great surprise in 1996 as well. Um, they go through the whole thing here where she still thinks he's Job, which we find out here. Where he's like, I need one hundred fifty thousand dollars. She goes, Why would I give you one hundred fifty thousand? She goes, Why not? You gave Job one hundred twenty five. She's like, Oh, so you're not Job? And here's where she starts getting like very sexual harassing of Tom Cruise, where she's like, Oh yeah, the message was different. Then there was the tone, playful, and <laughs> she starts rubbing his ears, like you're somewhat of a paradox. And he goes, Well, it depends on what whether or not you like a paradox and like they're ready to rip each other's clothes off right here and you know this is like a total spy thing here for Ethan Hunt too. um so he's basically saying the disc that you got from Job this is useless um it's just part of a mole hunt and they're like well it's easy for you to say if you tell us we can't use it he goes well fine use it you know I give you about two minutes but I'd pack first if I were you and the editing in this movie another thing that just does not get enough credit like how how much you can keep from the audience just with clever editing is they're watching this disc booting up and like, Oh, it's looking good so far. And Ethan's like, ah, you got two minutes and you suddenly start to see all these crews assembling outside of an apartment building and Kidridge is there. And you know, there's lab coats and they're storming a building and it's just cutting back and forth. And even today, I think you present this scene, people are fooled into thinking they're about to storm in on them, but eventually you cut away. And I've never quite figured out if, This is supposed to be the same apartment that, or maybe they somehow bounce their signal off something across the street. But by the time Kitridge gets in there, they're already gone. They realize that this is a fake disc or whatever. Uh, You know, Kitridge has a great scene. And and Barnes, his sidekick, another unsung hero of this movie. This guy takes so much abuse. Kitridge is such a dick of a boss. (laughs) I love him. Uh, When he's like, you know, oh, we can. you know, uh, put out his descriptions, like, what are you going to do, put a guy at the airport? <laughs> it's just so <laughs> awesome. Throughout this entire movie, uh, he talks about, you know, these guys are ghosts. We train them to be this way. This is, I think, why when you said, why don't they just arrest him as soon as he comes into the aquarium? Uh, it's because they know, like, they're trained to get out of anything. You have to fool them into thinking we're not after you. And he gives his first line here about you know uh, you know we have to make them come to us you know you find a pressure point and then you just squeeze. Uh, the car scene with Max again, like how great is Max in this movie? I remember at the time being a teenage boy, maybe being a little bit uncomfortable at this very older at the especially at the time older woman being extremely sexual, extremely flirty, and I'm like. I'm not quite sure this is the visual I want of my grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Now I watch it, I'm like, this is fantastic. Like, this is the way the villain is. The little things that she does in this scene um, where she's like, you know, uh, you have no idea uh, how precious anonymity is in my line of business. It's like a warm blanket. (laughs) She's like licking her lips. Everybody in this movie is just ready to have sex. It's nothing happens. (laughs) <laughs> Everybody's horny, yeah. So he gives this deal where he's like, oh, I'll give you the same deal as Job. You know, $6 million. He goes, I want $10 million. He runs through all those things. I want it, and this this type of bond and this and uh, this attached and blah, blah, blah. And she just sort of gives him this look. She goes, mmm. <laughs> <laughs> you made that sound again. <laughs> mm. <laughs> an exaggerated (laughs) version, but watch the movie. It's pretty darn close. Uh, And all he says is, the only other stipulation is I just want Job at the exchange. Make sure Job is there, and then this is a done deal. So uh, let's – Talk about the Maxine scene here. Tell me about whether it makes you uncomfortable as a 30 whatever old man <laughs> watching Vanessa Redgrave try to rape Tom Cruise.
1: Well, the, the weird thing is is I'm not exactly that disturbed about it because as anybody who listens to the Oz Network would know Vanessa Redgrave obviously is in Nip Tuck, and uh the fact that she uh-huh. is... Uh, well, her, her daughter, Jolly Richardson, is one of the main four people, and so in Nip Tuck she plays uh Her real life daughter's mother, so it's not a whole lot of acting there. But um she, I mean, like everyone in Nip Tuck is sort of sexual, and she ends up sleeping with Julian McMahon in uh, one of the seasons. So you know, and it's she not does. Like- does
0: she go? Mm? <laughs>
1: Well, she, she actually looks younger in Tuck than she does in this. And this is like 10 years afterwards. I know it's a show about plastic surgery, and she gets a facelift, so I guess it's meant to be. But, um, yeah, so it's, as soon as I saw this, like you said, is it a shock? To me, I wasn't like, oh my god, it's a woman. I'm like, oh my god, it's Vanessa (laughs) Redgrave. So, like, that to me was that straight away. Uh, but I, I love her. I think she's like, yeah, really good. I think it's just the way she's, you know, over flirtation. Cause when, when do we ever see like an older woman flirting with James Bond? I mean, except for Granny yeah. Penny. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like, it's unique. Like, you, y- you would assume that once or twice James Bond in his career has to have sex with like an older woman. So why don't we ever see it? Um, not saying that Tom Cruise has sex with Max here, but they have eye sex. That's about enough. Um, <laughs> uh, Can we say this is the
0: 1996 equivalent of a what makes you think this is my first time? Yeah, (laughs)
1: exactly. It's so ahead of it. It's like Skyfall just ripped everything off Mission Impossible. Yeah. (laughs) The list, the sexually suggestive looks, except, you know, in 1996, gay wasn't a thing you could talk about, so it had to be the older woman and the young guy. Ooh, that's really deep. That's what she said later on with Tom Cruise. But, um, yeah it's, I the I mean, I mentioned like the editing's a bit weird with sort of some of the transitions, but yeah, you're right, like it's it's all very tense the way they kind of do it because again you don't know uh where they are, but are these, these Kitri's just like driving around Prague, just like going Oh, well, they're gonna use it anytime now, <laughs> they're gonna use it, turn left here, they might be around this corner, like yeah, so quick to get two there.
0: minutes, <laughs> yeah,
1: like and the way he's like, they'll be here within two minutes, like, okay, I've never been to Prague. I'm sure it's a big city. Like, you live in Winnipeg. It's bigger than where I grew up in Hobart. Like, if you were on, I don't know, whatever side of Winnipeg you live on right now, the furthest part of the city, can you get there in two minutes? Like, if Tom Cruise is uploading something to a, a computer? No, unless you have, like, a Sky Uber or something. I don't know. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, just ignore it, man. It's a movie. But I like how the disc has the blood on it still. Uh can we just talk about disks floppy disks? Yes. <laughs> like, oh the technology. Uh, did you how, how many floppy disks did you used to own?
0: I mean I-, I bought one of those packs of like 20 floppy disks that you could buy and I swear you could never fill one of them. So I don't know why I had so many. <laughs>
1: Were they like 1.4 megabytes, which like nowadays you think, wow, you couldn't fit yeah. any of those. But like this is back in the day when an image was like 10 kilobytes. So like, you know, mm-hmm. you didn't put videos on them. I mean, you did, they were like a five second clip and it would fill the whole disc up. Um, so, but, but this is the age of um, dial-up. So 1.4 megabytes, there was a lot to download in 1996. Um Yeah, I I like the (laughs) the cast stuff, and you know, no, ten million dollars, but yeah, I I can't do any impersonations like you did. Mm. Oh, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh, we're gonna get into my favorite sequence here. It'll be coming up in a second because we have to do another scene first, but. Uh quickly, when Ethan goes back and he's got the $150,000 or whatever, Claire starts taking an inventory. And it's funny because he already told her, listen, you're going to have to be with me. Or if you are with me, then they're going to assume you are, so you better stick with me. And he's already said the entire plan, I'm going to get the knock list or whatever. But yeah, when she s- starts running the inventory here, he's like surprised, like, uh, are you sure you want to do this? Like, he basically forced her to – let's not talk about forcing her against her will to do anything here, but <laughs> – he spelled it out for us like, listen, you're, you're in this life of crime for good now. Uh, so I don't know why he's really surprised with her at all. But uh, they have to start recruiting for extra team members. So this is I, – I, I'd say it's probably also something that maybe people took a little bit of offense to who love the Mission Impossible TV show when you're recruiting agents. And now they even talk <coughs> – sorry. Oh. <coughs> Whoa. <coughs> Whoa. <coughs> Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Are you having some of that uh, coffee that's been squirted with something, Sue?
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, where was I going with that? The toilet, apparently. I don't know. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like an elephant choking. <laughs>
1: It sounds like we're going back to the days of Titanic with Snooty Britishman.
0: Yes, I'm <laughs> rich. Oh. <laughs> that's how that's how Max's henchmen talk. <laughs> mm, I always check
1: the batteries, <laughs> mm, Mr. Cruise. It's not my first time. I don't know what that was. <laughs> Running. I'm ready. I'm ready. On your lasagna, <laughs> get any on ya I'm ready. 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 I'm
0: ready. I'm ready. I'm ready.
1: I'm ready. 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 I'm
0: ready. I'm 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 ready. i am ready i am ready that's like that's like constipation. The way just. What has happened to this show?
1: I don't know. No one's listening. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. <laughs> Anyways, so they go on the disavowed list, which might have offended some other people because these are the bad guys. <laughs> they always say, you know, if uh, you or any of your team screws up, basically, the secretary will disavow any knowledge of your actions. So the idea that they're going for, like, these bad agents, I don't know if uh, people were offended by that as well. We get the train meeting here, and um, I love the train scene, too. Like, there's so many just great dialogues in this movie, and it's funny when we go through some of the reviews, which I don't know if I'll read that many of them but a lot of the reviews i'm finding saying the dialogue's not very good and we kind of joke like this isn't that quotable movie but i don't think it has to be a quotable movie to have great dialogue i mean the the fact that there could be this much interest in four people on a train talking and most of it's just ving rames giving off computer specs it's such a great scene and you get the personalities again of these team members very quickly um I don't know if this was a thing because there were two screenwriters on this movie: David Kep, who of course wrote Jurassic Park, that we talked about uh, recently, and the Lost World, uh, and then Robert Town, who's like an old screenwriter going back to like the uh, the the '70s, and they kind of worked on this in, in pieces. The script was put together like as they were making this movie. I think we talked about even again in Jurassic Park three about how that movie started without a finished script. And that's also the famous story with the first Iron Man movie is that they would just be writing the script on the day of you'd show up and you don't know what's supposed to happen in the movie. And they give you a few script pages and maybe by lunch, they've completely changed it. The same thing happened with this movie. They had their action scenes, which they kind of filmed first and then they were writing the dialogue throughout, but you get little scenes like this. I don't know if it was the screenwriting or if it's just the way that Brian De Palma films these scenes that makes it so interesting, but like, I love the scene and yet I've got n- nothing really to say on it. I mean, other than they're recruiting and, you know, you find out Jean Renault is uh, this guy who's great at getting equ- equipment and, uh, you know, Ving Rames who, I know I'd seen him in ER at this point, but, like, this was by far his first big break. And he, I think we also in forget... Pulp Fiction,
1: wasn't
0: he? Oh, yes, he was in Paul Fiction, yeah. But, I mean, a movie that size, I don't know how many people... Love it. it was sort of after this movie, though, what I mean is that he started popping up at everything. And he went from being, oh yeah, that's that guy maybe from Pulp Fiction to that guy who uh, was you know uh, in ER uh, as a background character in a couple of seasons to this guy is in every single movie under the sun. I mean, looking at 1996 on, he did Mission Impossible and Striptease that year. <laughs> uh, well,
1: Pul- one was good, one was bad.
0: <laughs> the following year, Con Air. After that, Out of Sight. The next year, Entrapment. No. Um, you like Entrapment?
1: Love Entrapment.
0: Good. We'll cover it one day. <laughs> I watched
1: that recently. I actually, I think it was one of the f- that might have been the first movie Mallory and I ever watched. Um, really? but uh, yeah, Catherine Zeta-Jones in leather, going under laser beams. What's not to like?
0: Uh yeah. I mean, I I haven't seen it in a couple of years, but I, I was just thinking because we were just watching Ocean, the Ocean's movies, and she's in Ocean's Twelve, and said, you know, two of the only movies I actually liked her in were Ocean's Twelve and Entrapment. So. Uh, Ving Rain's month coming soon. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Tease.
0: <Strip-tease. laughs>
1: God, you're not allowed to watch that. There's boobies in it. Uh-
0: <laughs> Jamie, hey, are these I've things? I've just watched a 59-year-old woman molest a 32-year-old man <laughs> in a car without well, actually. Demi Moore touching wasn't
1: him. 59, surely, but I mean, at that point, she probably's
0: now.
1: What happened to Demi Moore?
0: I'm sure she's still alive.
1: Uh, yeah. Well.
0: <laughs> so the most you can see, she's still kicking.
1: Her career. Her heart's yeah, beating. But anyway.
0: Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the train scene, there's there's the one really good line there with Bing Rames. because uh, I think he definitely gets the most personality out of I don't think he gets the most personality. Bing Rames has the most personality out of anybody in this cast. When, you know, Ethan's like, oh, that's not what I heard about you and, you know, uh, you were the only guy who did this and this and this and he goes, there was never anything that, uh, uh, prove that I had anything to do with that extraordinary hack <laughs> he just totally backpedals when you know at first he's like um I think maybe I need to start impressing these people or it's just so sort of like well I can subtly take credit for it they kind of piece together they want to do this and when Ethan says you know we're going to Langley and uh, the CIA mainframe and he said what are we taking information what kind profitable <laughs> and then you get this is another mission impossible theme like is they're sort of laying out the plan just like we saw earlier you're giving the details of what we have to do but not how we're going to do it so we start seeing this scene cut back and forth with i guess a visualization of okay so this is what the securities look like so we get this guy don low who's the only guy who can go into this black vault and they've got the this pressure sensor on the floor and then there's the the temperature thing that can go up and uh there's the, the the sound in the room and the the ventilation from the ceiling and the voice activation like all these security measures which by the way is great when they first introduce it and um he, you know he's saying like how difficult it's going to be and Ethan's like relax it's much worse than you think <laughs> it's just I love the arrogance of the spies here and he runs through the whole thing and again only ving rays can sell that shot of when he basically goes through all the security and, and it cuts back after showing, you know, what these security systems actually are. And it cuts to Vingray's face and it's basically like his jaw is at the floor. He goes, and you actually think we're going to do this? He's like, "Yo, we're going to do it. Then we get the iconic Mission Impossible theme. So not much notes here. This is where my notes just basically become uh, fire, Don Lowe, Claire out, uh, zero body count, pen poison, um, ducks. Beans. I don't know what beans has to do with this. Beams. That's what I meant. Not toast. <laughs> beans and toast. I was hungry when I wrote this. <laughs> but this sequence here. This is. I, I, I might have so much to talk about on this. So interrupt at a point if you feel like it. Um, the black vault scene here that we're gonna get. This is the big heist of the movie. This is like your traditional Mission Impossible scene. The amazing thing they have to pull off, where you don't know how they're gonna do until the end. The impossible task. Uh, years ago I tried to think about you know what is like the greatest action scene of all time and there's certain things that like easily will come to my head like you know the Death Star battle in Star Wars or the motorcycle chase in Terminator 2 or the car chase in Ronin and there's all these incredible action scenes like the clock tower sequence in back to the future and ultimately and I might be I probably am not alone in this because I'm sure everybody knows this is the iconic scene from the movie But I would actually go as far as to say every movie that's ever existed this is my number one favorite action sequence of all time. And what makes it so impressive is that everybody moves very slow in this. Nobody speaks above a whisper. There's no music. And the action is built around things like a bead of sweat on glasses. And a dial on a thermostat rising. And just these tiny little things. But I mean, I would put this up like with the T Rex attack in Jurassic Park 1. It's completely different type of action. But if you were to ask me what is the greatest action scene of all time, I would say the Black Vault sequence from Mission Impossible. It's obviously what everybody remembers it from. I mean, with the Tom Cruise dangling from the ceiling, which I remember, you know, being a teenager watching this, not thinking much of it. But then you think about doing this yourself and think about the amount of balance you'd have to have to pull this off because he actually did do this. This isn't like. You know CGI or anything. I mean, there is none in this movie, um, but just dangling there for the entire time. The way that the tension builds in here, uh, with the cutting back and forth, and the the setups we get of everything, like when they're they're doing the thing, they're like one, two, three, toast, toast, mm-hmm. and you start to see like that dial raise, and you had that setup before, and then the mouse comes into the the ductwork and. Uh, Krieger's holding him and he sees it, he, he sneezes, all these little tiny things that shouldn't be exciting on their own, but you piece them all together and you have this impossible mission and the li- you know they've set this up, the littlest thing will screw this up and they're all going to jail for life and probably death penalty uh, and this whole movie's over. And the fact that somebody sneezing could ruin this for them, uh, or a guy just simply having a stronger stomach than they gave him credit for. Which, by the way, William Donlow, another unsung hero of this movie. This guy's great. Yes. Like the facial expressions he gives, like when uh, um, you know he he's gone back and forth to the bathroom. Just his double take the first time when he starts to come out, and all of a sudden you can see like it almost looks like his gut comes in. He's like, oh, <laughs> and just runs back in there. Uh, when people are passing him in the hallway, and he kind of gives this nervous like, "Hi, <laughs> please don't go near me." Uh, this guy's fantastic. And just going back and forth between him, Tom Cruise dangling, Jean Renault in the Duckworth, uh, Ving Rames narrating, you know, uh, the, the temperature going up. This is a perfect scene. I mean, uh, notes don't even, there's no way to do notes for this. It's just incredible. And the, the way that, that when he's dangling there in that sweat, I just remember being in the theater. One of the few times I could remember you see, uh, dramatizations of what people are like in like an action movie or a horror movie where they're actually jumping out of their seats this moment. And then one moment that's going to come another mission Impossible. Movie. probably the only times I could actually remember my life sitting in a theater and visibly moving and jumping in my seat. Just when that sweat's coming, you're like, no, I, I stop me now because I, I <laughs> uh, I'm going to go on forever. If I have to keep talking about how great this scene is.
1: Um, Rolf Saxon uh is the actor's name who plays uh Don Lo and can I just point out he was in Tomorrow Never Dies uh apparently what? he was Philip Jones it was Philip Jones in Tomorrow Never Dies um, That's not a thing He was also in Entrapment <laughs> so but uh, I think he's probably best known as the narrator in the US version of Teletubbies between 1997 <laughs> and 2001. Rolf Saxon, the man for everything. Um, and no, you can go to rolfsaxon.com. We well, can go to rolfsaxon.com and contact him right now. Uh, <laughs> G'day, Rolf. We're just doing it. I'll do it right now. He, like, rings us up. Um, Just backtracking quickly. How do you say Jean Reno? I just said John Reno. Like, um, that's the...
0: it's <laughs> a bilingual country. We, we, we are the authority Reno. <laughs> who i uh, love I, I, by the way i just want to say i pinpointed rolf Saxon. as it's more never dies he's one of the guys on the screen when uh, carver is talking to all the people on that giant video uh, wall he's one of the guys there
1: uh-huh okay understand uh of course we all know those guys off by heart um yeah <laughs> jean renault um <laughs> come on Godzilla, The Professional, yes. um, oh. you know, someone who hates Natalie Portman. You can't hate that movie. Come on. Ronin. Did uh, you ever
0: see Ronan? I mentioned it as far n- as action scenes go.
1: Uh, I've never actually seen it, no. But as soon as you said Ronan, I pictured him. I pictured the yep. poster. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, one, one of the few good things to come out of France. So, um, got a new genre. The, the lesser Gerard Depardieu, who doesn't, like, go off and get, like, banned from his country or whatever happened. Um but yeah, Ving Rhames, um I, I like this whole introduction and I like the bit when he says like um what does he say like I get to keep the equipment after we're finished yeah. or whatever it is. Um Can I just point out I'm still not really understanding this movie at this point. <laughs> I'm like have they got the <laughs> list and it's it's not real, so they've got to get the real one. It's real.
0: What? But well yeah, but I think you're still supposed to be confused because his motive for getting the list isn't clear until we get close to the end. Like, he's using it as leverage to draw the person who is setting him up. But you're not supposed to know that at this point in the movie, nor are you supposed to know it until you've seen the movie two or three times, really.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm just like, okay, whatever. But, like, you know, I, I'm not going to... I'm with you. I, I don't know if I'd say this is my favourite action scene of all time, but, I mean, it's it's a great scene. It's the one that everybody remembers from out of all the Mission Impossible movies, really. And you also can tell that... It's a great scene, or kind of it's done really well. When the amount of parodies that come out of it, or just at least yeah. the ones that copied. I mean, we just talked about the laser scene from Entrapment. I mean, that's kind of a direct, you know, almost rip off of this, except it's just a sexy woman in a suit doing ballet underneath all these bits. But I mean, there there are so many things. I don't. I feel bad for nitpicking the bits of like, well, they make so much sound in this thing, and yet nothing <laughs> goes off. Um, and just all the little, um, like, just, there's so much sound, man. When he's typing on the keys, like, why do they not have pressure sensors on this? Why is there no video cameras in this room? Um,
0: like, it's just, well, it's the most top secret things. material. They don't want to film and release the footage somewhere else of the most <laughs> top secret things.
1: And why does Rolf Saxon have to go in and out of this room, like, every half an hour? Like, is it just, like, if they're that paranoid with security, like, I, I don't know, like, I feel you
0: like. Know what? I also wonder, like when I'm watching this, he obviously has access to this room. He may not even be the only person. Is this just a room where it's like, oh, I got to do some work on the knock list. I'm going (laughs) to have to go in the black vault. Or is is this where he always works? Because like the job I'm at now, I didn't always have the job I had now. At one point, I was only working there like casual, like a few days a week, just on a temporary project where they didn't actually have – A desk for me. And all I really had to do is I just had to work on a computer dialing into, you know, uh, uh, other computers or or systems and stuff like that. So they put me in, which is basically a workshop closet. It was a closet. So I worked (laughs) in a closet for like four years, I used to tell people. And that's what this kind of reminds me of. Like, I I was that guy where it's like, well, I got to go to the big white room where I'm not (laughs) allowed to sweat or drink my. Fanta. Or it is. Yes. Oh, Fanta.
1: <laughs> I said urine. Never mind.
0: Oh. <laughs> what? <laughs> what significance does that have?
1: He said, "Well, oh, I wasn't allowed to drink mine. I went with a urine joke, and then you <laughs> talked, and it wasn't funny. Awkward."
0: <laughs> mm. <laughs>
1: That's how Bear grills finishes every single time he's out. <laughs> okay, I heard the elephant then, moving on.
0: <laughs> There's also a moment that, again, you appreciate it on repeat viewings here, uh, where you see like the first sign of Krieger being shady when they're actually escaping their fire truck and he kind of just gives like this sideways glance uh, because... You have those shots where he gave him the disc as soon as he got there, and then the knife drops and everything, which, again, it's going to come later. The fact that Brian De Palma, the way that he pieced this movie together, the way he shot it, the way he edited it, that props that are barely seen on screen can tell stories later on, like a disc or a knife. It's incredible that they can use those and actually get the story across, because even if you don't understand the plot, you understand, oh, yeah, that's the knife. Now I get it uh you know th- th- that's where the disc went and now i get it oh he did have two discs um did you have anything else to add on the black vault sequence or
1: um not really i mean it's just yeah it's it's incredibly iconic and it's great and i mean what what is that rat doing up there this is the cia like, yeah. like
0: they're infested some, with rats
1: like come on and, and how does he kill the rat i don't understand
0: Jamie asked the question, but I said, he's Jean Renault, He did it with his bare hands.
1: Yeah. <laughs> he's French. He breathed this garlic the, breath on it.
0: This is this is the professional. <laughs> How would he have yeah. done it? <laughs> <laughs> he's
1: an assassin.
0: <laughs> um, That's it. So, after this, again, another sequence that I love with Kid Ridge, where he's always, like, very dramatic. And he has this way of being condescending in kind of this cool boss way, like, you know, I've definitely had bosses who are condescending, and I've had some who are like, condescending but you like them for it, you know? Uh the way he's like face to face with uh this guy, and you see poor Donald like hanging his head in shame in the background, it's almost like, I've been a bad boy. <laughs> Kid <laughs> was like, This never happens, you understand me? I want to manning a radar tower and a last by the end of the day, mail him his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just as hard as it can possibly be. And I always like to put together in my head, you know mail him his clothes i'm like donald's probably got a wife like he's literally gonna be in alaska by the end of the day like do, do, do they basically send a guy to his house pack up the clothes and he's like, what are you doing with my <laughs> husband's clothes like we're mailing it why we'll tell you later need to know <laughs> poor family don L-
1: <laughs> yeah poor um, Rolf saxon
0: <laughs> ralph saxon's my hero i want him on the what? show like we gotta get we gotta if we had the time, we would totally do interviews, but he would honestly be one of my first choices. <laughs> <laughs> if we had
1: the time, we would like, do things like make money off this show, promote it better, be more professional, maybe come up with a better name, do better graphics. Edit out, edit out the sneezes. Be, be more, you know, do shit that would make it listenable. But, Cutting you know, since we show- stopped covering Survivor, no one listens to us anymore. But whatever, we have fun, and we like Rolf Saxon, and everyone should. <laughs> Coming soon. Rolf Saxon us. Oz.
0: Rolf Saxon That'll month. <laughs> we could. We just we literally talked about at least one other movie we've already covered a full recap of, and another one we just talked about wanting to do. Rolf Saxon, Ving Rames. You know, if people aren't listening to us for Jurassic Park and Mission Impossible months, wait till we bring you Ving Rams and Rolf Saxon months.
1: <laughs> that will be that will be the start. That'll be yeah. just like the Rob v. Rob scenario on Survivor Oz, it got us noticed, it will be. <laughs> all of these info... Oh, Rob! Rob Saxon, man! <laughs> uh,
0: so, yeah, R- Rolf Saxon's written out of the movie here, sadly. Uh, we Aww. cut to London. You know it's London because it's the 90s, so everything's in big letters on the screen. Thankfully, this wasn't, like, scrolling across the screen with... As the letters came up. A little bit classier. Um... Ethan's sending his email to job 315 now. They've evolved. (laughs) You have Krieger getting very nosy here. You know, are you contacting your buyer? And I I love Krieger's condescending thing here where he's like, Ethan, Ethan, he goes, oh, excuse me, Mr. Hunt. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And he basically says, you're not going anywhere without me. And he basically holds him hostage here. So, you know, the Krieger's a bad guy, but they haven't made him like complete villain yet. It's just, it's somebody that you have to be careful of. And there's something where he goes, You're not going anywhere because I have the disc here. And Claire goes, Something like, Oh, Krieger. And I'm going to have to Google this here. I didn't have time. My entire life watching this movie, I swear that he said there, Thank you, in his French accent, as in like, She's like, Oh, Krieger, why would you do that? He goes, Thank you. Like, he's proud of himself for being sleazy. Um, oh, okay. So this, he says, Tag, tag, tag well or something like that
1: which yes.
0: basically means shut your trap
1: oh of course it does Yep.
0: but he says <laughs> it in a way like he's like thank you uh, so I don't know <laughs> I like to think that he says thank you to her like he's proud of me I just what he'd to say,
1: mmm.
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> we'll read that into everything the raptor does not say Al and the raptor goes
1: mmm <laughs> When when the T-Rex knocks the car off into the tree Instead of going It's like mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Oh, we're funny We are so funny We are comedians yes. <laughs> People should listen to this show more often They'll find us funny, alright if you're, if you're listening to this right now And you're laughing at us Leave us a comment on iTunes And just say, you're funny well, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's all I want in life, people. Is a comment on iTunes saying you're funny. That's it. i made it.
0: Tag, tag, tag well, or whatever it is you said. <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> mm, thank you. <laughs> Sounds you like
1: Grover know. from Sesame Street like <laughs> constipated or something like that.
0: You know, you're totally John Cleese in Die Another or the The World Is Not Enough for Die Another. Which one was it where he was introduced? World is not oh, enough. enough? <laughs> 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 Anyways <laughs> So he's trying to hold him ransom. Uh, Ethan here is like, don't you mean this disc? And he does his cool magic trick, which I'm sure that there's some CGI in that. Tom Cruise isn't really a magician, but I, I just love Aww. that the magic trick. And again, another great spy thing. Like, he thinks on his feet, because you find out here at the end of the scene after he's like, you know, oh, I've got the disc, which, again, I love his boss's wife, who at this point he still believes has been a widow for approximately <laughs> three days. I love that he pulls the disc out by reaching inside her shirt and lifting it out from behind her pants <laughs> a little bit creepy here but <laughs> sorry <laughs> but claire's claire's enjoying it here um and i even love that you could see her in the background laughing now i don't have a lot of great things to say about claire um the actress i don't think i've ever seen her in anything else emmanuel barrett uh so she's french too so there's two french no. icons in this movie uh I think she's really only done French movies, but I remember the time this came out thinking, because of how big this movie was, like, oh, she's probably going to be a really big star. And then I don't think she ever did another English language movie again after that. But uh, I don't know. Do you have any opinions on her or her performance? And we talk about Bing Rames and John Renault and everything. I don't think she's bad in this movie. I, I actually think once you know what her character's significance is, I think she does it well, but maybe the most forgettable of the main characters in this movie.
1: I agree with that, but I just, I, nothing redeeming about her. I mean, she's just kind of there. She's kind of boring. Like she's just, I don't know. She does nothing for me. Um, is it partly, I was just going
0: to say, is it partly a problem that, I mean, you know, eventually that she is one of the villains, but is it also a problem that before you realize that she's a villain, you are watching this thinking like, she's really touchy feely for a woman who's been widowed for three days. And maybe that yeah. is what makes her unredeemable.
1: And she seems to be a bit too, you know, I'll oh, touch me Tom Cruise uh, for yeah. someone who's just, you know, I mean, okay, if you're married to John Voight, you probably would rather Tom Cruise, but like, I mean, you know, give it a couple of days before you're jumping on Tom Cruise, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, there might be more to that, which we'll talk about uh, at the end of this year. Uh, but anyway, so, um, she even says, sorry, Krieger. So here's where one thing starts getting pieced together and the audience starts to clue in. Maybe. Maybe not. Ben, you can tell me. <laughs> Having seen this movie twice in 22 years. Uh, I
1: still don't know what's going on at this point. No.
0: Sean <laughs> Jean, Renaud's knocked the Bible off the desk and he opens it up and he sees Drake Hotel in Chicago. So Ethan starts to piece something together there. I still didn't get it when I saw this the first sec- – uh, maybe the second time. Uh, but I didn't get it when I saw it the first time still at this point, even though I knew that Jean Voigt was still going to be coming back. Uh, but when Claire says here, I'm sorry, Krieger was my call, that's the other clue that on repeat viewing you're like, oh, okay, so she had to bring him in here because he was going to be the one who was going to sabotage them and was in on this with Phelps and everything. Um, he finds on the TV that his mom and his uncle, who they talked about earlier – are uh now drug kingpins and queens uh in florida and I love he- this, i
1: just interrupt, I love the random storyline of Ethan Hunt's parents, like, it's, you know, I know James Bond's parents, like, died in a skiing accident, a climbing yeah. accident, but, like, you know, just, imagine, you know, secret agent's parents just chilling on a farm somewhere, all of a sudden, <laughs> the police, oh, you're, up, you're under arrest, like, I want that as a James Bond plotline, your parents aren't really yeah. killed in a skiing accident, they're in Florida, they've been charged with drug, drug possession.
0: As if James Bond's parents are farmers. Like I also would say as if Hunt's <laughs> are, <saw her> too.
1: <laughs> Which is like Thanksgiving at the Hunt residence. So Ethan, how's your year been? Oh, just saving the world, Mum. How about you? Oh, just picking some barley. It's pretty good. It's fun. Like, you should do it.
0: Couple new calves this spring. <laughs> uh, got an elephant out the back in here. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, But he storms off in the rain to go make another payphone call. There's a lot of payphones. Another thing that makes this very 1996. Uh, And again, the location. Like, I don't know what this location is. If this is, you know, some big train station. Well, I know it's London. (laughs) I'm saying specific location where they go the train station. It just, it looks like a very big location. Like, this might be, this is like Grand Central Station in London or something. I don't know. But... It's a great location. I like that this movie uses... All these movies use real locations. Like, they always film around the world. And uh, he gets on the phone with Kidridge here. And here we have some more great, like, Kidridge being a bit of a dick. Uh, I-, I love that when Ethan's on the phone and Barnes, his sidekick, keeps handing him the paper saying, we need this long or whatever. Kidridge doesn't even look at it. Like, he basically says, trace the call. The guy hands him the piece of paper. He grabs it and then he slams it down the desk and he's like... But anyways, Ethan, like, stop bothering me, Barnes. <laughs> <He just has laughs> no time for this guy. Um, and uh, he's keeping on the phone. He's he's dancing around it. I even love that Kidridge slows his speech down, like trying to drag this out a little bit. Well, Ethan, <laughs> we've been watching. How TV. was your day? Ethan's like, so Kidridge, like.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try to in London. Like, why don't you (laughs) tell me? Let's go, let's go, jump onto next to me. Bye bye. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) I'm literally making a stupid noise and we're laughing at. No wonder no one listens to us. There's probably some other great movie podcast out there. Oh yes, we're going to recap all the Mission Impossible. We're going to be very thorough and, you know, this bit is very important to the cinematic universe. And we're just going
0: <laughs> Vanessa Redgrave's sex noises as elephants <laughs> that are muzzled. <laughs> <laughs> um, So, when he's on the paper, another little detail of a spy thing, like there's two things that Ethan does here. One, he's kind of starting to portray this character where it's like you're not going to catch me, Kidridge, when he says, "Tell me if I, you you were somebody who killed, murdered, set up all of your team, did this, betrayed your country. How devastated would you be by seeing mom and uncle, you know, whatever, marched off to the courthouse?" Uh, but at the same time, he's a- actually subtly planting the seeds with Kid Ridge, as far as like what the characters are doing. That there's a seed of doubt. It's like. Why would I be doing this? Like, if, if, is this going to matter to me if I'm this terrible guy you're making me out to be? And there's going to be another scene later on where he does that. He eventually hangs up with him. We have three seconds to go and he's like, he wanted us to know he was in London. And again, you don't know the reason at this point because this is Mission Impossible. You have to piece it together later on why all these little things were happening. Uh, somebody turns around from the phone and it's Jim Phelps. Mr. Jolie. It's Mr. Jolie. <laughs> It's Lord Richard Croft! (laughs) Now, I I did say earlier that, you know, John Voight was not really at the height of his career in 1996. I don't know if it was just me at the time, because, I mean, if I look back, he did Heat the year prior to this, but I don't know, I've seen Heat many times. I don't remember John Voight that well in Heat. Did he have a big role, do you remember?
1: Oh, God, it's been a long time since I've seen Heat. I couldn't tell you.
0: I mean, just just looking at his career here, because he was a huge star in the 70s, of course. Um... He made 1982, then another movie in 1983, 1985, 1986, nothing until 1990, then one movie in 91, one in 92, one in 93. These are TV movies. <laughs> Return to Lonesome Dove, a miniseries. Oh. He had four episodes. He played John Voigt in Seinfeld for one episode. Tot-Cat. Two more TV movies. <laughs> and then Heat, followed by Mission Impossible. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say... Uh, Even looking at Heat here, like, trying to see where he's billed. I mean, he's got, like, fourth billing. But, I mean, this movie was filming by the time Heat even came out.
1: Well, the first time I I ever saw him was, I mean, I probably would have seen this maybe before Anaconda, but I always knew him as the evil prick from Anaconda, and that was, like, a year later, wasn't it?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, this movie kind of jump-started his career again, because he goes from this to Anaconda to uh, U-Turn, the Rainmaker, um, Enemy of the State, like, this is just two or three years. Varsity Blues, like, these are major roles he had all of a sudden. And then there was Pearl Harbor and Tomb Raider, and then it was done. Uh, Super babies,
1: did, Baby Geniuses too.
0: He did get an Oscar nomination for Ali years later, which he just did a small cameo doing an impression of Howard Cassell. But anyways, John <laughs> Voight comes back here. Um, um, I wonder if this was a surprise, because as I said, it was the one thing that was spoiled for me. That you know, John Voight's character wasn't actually dead when you thought he was dead. Uh, people at the time, like, did they think, "Oh, John Voight"? I kind of recognize him from that episode of Seinfeld where he played John Voight, <laughs> uh, or lo- Return to the Lonesome Dove, or was this something where they're like, "Well, it's John Voight; he's going to come back." I would honestly assume that you know, especially at this point, Emilio Estevez being a bigger star than John Voight, people probably weren't expecting him to come back. Um, I don't know if you remembered him coming back in this movie at all, but uh, what was the reveal I, like?
1: I, I mean, I didn't remember, but I kind of assumed he would have to, because, you know, you were talking about how, like, let's get Emilio Estevev and kill him off straight away, because that's, like, the big star. But, like, it's kind of a case of, well, are they going to kill John Voight and Emilio Estevev off at the beginning and just be completely yeah. dicks to the audiences with these big stars? And, again, I know you're saying that, really, at this time, John Voight wasn't a big star, but, I mean... You know, I mean, when Demi Moore, you mentioned Charlie's Angels, when she came back, she wasn't a big star when the sequel Charlie's Angels came about. Her career yeah. kind of died, but it was still heavily promoted as Demi Moore's in this movie. So I think, you know, he's still there. And there are plenty of actors who will pop up in a movie nowadays who haven't been famous in, you know, 20, 30 years, and all of a sudden they're going to try and sell them as someone big. So, yeah, I think kind of in watching this, I assumed he would have to because you're not going to kill John Voight and of off basically within, like, five minutes of each other, and that's it.
0: I actually like John Voight in this movie, which is hard for me to say um, because, to be perfectly honest, I don't really like John Voight that much. I think he's a good actor. I think in the right movie he's great. Uh, I would have never seen this movie otherwise. But uh, uh, I think two years ago I decided to watch through all the Best Picture winners from like nineteen twenty seven on, and the very last movie I eventually got around to seeing was Midnight Cowboy, uh, and I mean that movie was fantastic, and he was amazing in that movie. But aside from that, I mean, I thought he was great in Varsity Blues, as I said. The Rainmaker is another one I really liked him in. But for the most part, I think John Voight, like, he appears in these movies. I'm like, he's okay, but sometimes you get him in, like, something like Transformers or Pearl Harbor. You're like, "Ah, it's just kind of annoying. Uh, Even in 24, I wasn't, like, a huge John Voight 24 fan. Uh, But in this movie, like, maybe it's because I'm such a huge Mission Impossible fan. I always see him as Jim Phelps. And it probably just is because I'm a huge fan. But I also think it's probably one of the better roles and definitely one of the more major roles because I think he's more of a supporting actor nowadays. And this is pretty close to a lead role still. Um, It it just would really be interesting to hear from somebody who watched the show and what was it like because this is where they probably had false hope. They're like, oh, I'm so angry at this movie 20 minutes in. They're like, they killed off Jim Phelps. And all of a sudden, Jim Phelps is alive. I'm so happy. And that's why this next scene, I'm curious as to the reasons why this is edited the way it is. Because I'm sure this is another part that's confusing to you. Uh, (laughs) This is one of the scenes that when I was watching, I'm like, yeah, you present this in a 2018 movie. People still are scratching their heads just because of the way Brian De Palma made this scene play out. Where Phelps is basically saying, listen, I know what it was. It was Kidridge and Ethan's completely going along with him. Their conversation, if you watch this scene only watching their conversation and you don't see any of what Ethan's visualizing in his head, Ethan is actually going along with it. He's like, yeah, Kitridge, that makes total sense. Kitridge did this, and then Kitridge did that. But every time he's saying Kitridge would have done this, he's visualizing Jim doing it. Yeah, we haven't actually seen any moment where Ethan put two and two together and said it's Jim. We saw the thing with the Drake Hotel Bible, but then he reappears. And I remember watching this the first time and thinking, oh, well – he put, planted. I remember thinking he planted the Bible there so that Ethan would know he was in London. Like this is this is my signal to you, Ethan. But this is Ethan actually just in his head putting it together, and he's actually seeing John Voigt, you know, pulling the tr- the the trigger uh, or the trigger on himself or the blank or whatever, and the blood packets, uh, stabbing Sarah. Um, blowing up the car. And of course, he, he backtracks. So he, he he would have had to have a help. And he starts to visualize Claire's doing it. And he's like, no, 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 it couldn't have been her. He could have done it himself. And then he visualizes that. So he does all this. And then his response is, he goes, why, Jim? Which you could read that as him actually putting it together and saying, why would you do this, Jim? And Jim still thinks he's going along with it. He's like, well, you wake up one day and the president's running the country without your permission. He gives his whole speech, the whole Cold War is over thing. But Ethan's going along with it completely here. And he basically says, don't tell Claire. Um, so he knows he has the knock list. Jim thinks that Ethan's going along with her. He thinks that he's buying his story. Ethan's suspecting it. I don't know. You can tell me more when you talk about this if you actually I
1: believe. No I clear what's going on <laughs> right now. I just that Claire was able. All of a sudden, John's
0: like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Your theory at the point watching this, did Ethan know? What was Ethan thinking? Uh, but the other interesting thing just to finish up here when Ethan goes back and he's you know he doesn't tell any of this to Claire, Claire's basically lying on the floor and she grabs his hand towards I mean you know what they're about to do. they cut away here, so you don't see them actually sleeping together, but when you watch the trailer for this movie, there is a very clear shot in the trailer where they're essentially throwing each other around the room, humping each other uh and it looks like it would have been a pretty. I'm not going to say graphic as in that you're seeing nudity or anything, but it would have been a pr- pretty intense sex scene that was in the movie intense and was shot. by Colin Hilding's standard, of yes. course. You need say strip tease. Oh, my God, what are those things? I just visualized two people going back and forth. Mm, mm, mm,
1: mm, mm. <laughs> that, that's what porn is to Colin. Just people going... Mm, <laughs> mm.
0: But, but watch the trailer to see it. There was a scene here where they they do have sex, Uh, and there's also a plot where I don't know if they filmed this and cut it or if it was cut while screenwriting, but the original story was that even at the beginning of this movie, there was going to be something going on between Ethan and Claire, which if that's the case, you can see it throughout the movie with kind of the way they are with each other. I think that makes this scene less effective um maybe at the very least that she was trying to seduce him throughout the movie but them not showing that i think is what makes the surprise coming up later on so much better
1: to me and maybe it's just because i feel that she's bald in this film but it's just i don't really have chemistry and i just i just don't I think see they it do. and uh i don't i just think it's, it's nothing weird. like
0: in part two with tandy newton but i, I think they do definitely have chemistry
1: Oh, like with, you know, Tom Cruise and Vanessa Redgrave. I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's, yes. not that, it's not that full on. Um, but I think um, my whole confusion is because we've just basically gotten a scene where it's like, oh, Claire's evil. But then it's like, John Voigt's back. So you kind of like, oh, he knew that Claire was evil. So he's trying to protect. But then all of a sudden, within like the space of 30 seconds, we're now learning that he's evil too. And it's kind of like, I, I kind of like the twist, because like you don't generally bring back someone from the dead like that to all of a sudden, they're either like okay, Alex Trevelyan and Goldeneye, maybe that's a bad example. But, yeah, it's just kind of, and the way this is being edited, I remember I paused this at this point, because Mallory wasn't watching. She didn't watch this with me, but she said, oh, I wish I had watched it, I like that movie. Anyway, I just paused and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on at this point. Like, he's back. But then he's talking about something, but then we're getting these flashbacks to imply that he's evil, but yeah. Tom Cruise isn't calling him out on it. I'm like, what? I don't get it. <laughs> I'm like, what's happening here? Um, so that's where my head is at this point, because I like I can see what they're doing, but at the same time, I'm just so goddamn confused. I'm like, but they're showing he's evil, but he's not... Oh, I don't know. I want to watch Jurassic Park again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that this scene, the way that they're doing it, A, it's because they want the audience to be clued in in a more clever way. And I actually think that this is not only a more clever way of presenting it, because you could imagine they could have done the scene just with the dialogue, none of Ethan visualizing it. And then when the reveal comes up with Jim later on, that's the the traditional way of a movie doing it, where all of a sudden he's like, yes, I'm the villain. I was... Pulling the strings all along, you know? Mm. Uh if it weren't for those rascally kids, that's kind of the way that <laughs> you scene would have gotten away would've... with a
1: two. Yeah.
0: That's the way that scene would have played out without this. Which works in as... this
1: movie with the amount of time they pull off masks in this movie. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Tom <laughs> I Cruise. Well, I would've gotten away that... with a two if it wasn't for that <laughs> mess. <laughs> Get rich. But um well, I definitely think this is a way of presenting it where you're messing with the audience's mind because the scene is telling you two separate things. It's telling you Kit Rich is the villain, but then it's telling you – but Ethan thinks Jim is. But then it's telling you Ethan's still willing to go along with Jim. You don't realize Ethan's playing everybody at this point. Ethan's so evil. So you walk away – well, you walk away from this scene thinking, yeah, so maybe Jim I, – I understand Ethan's thinking that. But maybe he's not that bad because he's still willing to – Tell Jim his whole plan. Why would he tell him he had the knuckles otherwise? It's just a way of messing with the audience's head. But I think the other thing that this accomplished was those audience members who are going to be angry that you killed off Jim Phelps. Now you bring him back. They're going to get the false hope that he ends up being the hero. So you immediately deflate that and you plant the seed in their head. Oh, he might actually kind of be a villain. And this might be a way to sort of soften the blow later on.
1: Yeah. I still was just confused as fuck.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it remember, takes a I don't read
1: books. books so. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but the important thing is they have the knock list.
1: Yes, they do. And now we're on the train.
0: We're on the train. Um, <laughs> one thing I did forget, though, was uh, the important scene that we had before he went to meet Jim, where he picks the disc out of the garbage and you realize, oh, no. Krieger actually had the real disc the whole time, and that was just Ethan's whole magic trick. This was his spy thing. You think on your feet. You just immediately come up with a way to fool somebody, and he got the real disc back by making Krieger throw it out by thinking it was worthless. Um, When Luther is like, oh, he had it the whole time, he basically gives it to Luther, and he goes, why would you give it to me? He says, because if you knew what you were getting into, you never would have done this. Luther very firmly says, like, I'm never going to let this get out in the open which is important because you know at that point Luther's the one character that's not going to betray Ethan. Uh, and also the other moment earlier on when they had the Black Bolt scene and he sees it and all he could say is, holy mother of God, the Nockless. Like You realize this is an important thing because that's the other thing that I, I think whenever you have a movie like this where it's all about just stealing something, this isn't like Mission Impossible 2 where it's a virus that could wipe out all of Australia or <laughs> 3 where it's this incredible weapon that they don't even tell you what it is just powerful or four where it's you know uh, an access codes to a nuclear weapon or five and six or whatever those are going to be about this is just we're stealing a list and it's not even something the audience would necessarily care about because they're stealing a list that gives away the cover names of agents that you've never met you don't know who these people are they're not characters in the movie even though like ethan would probably have one on there or whatever this isn't going to matter to the audience so the more that you could have somebody like Ving Rhames selling, like, this is really wrong what we're doing here, I think that makes the knock list seem like a better, you know, object uh, for for this heist and everything that's going to happen. Uh, but another interesting thing, like, the way I think that they are still trying to plant those seeds of doubt in your head even if you're suspecting at this point or you're being told Phelps is the villain is that when they cut to that incredible shot of the train where you just see the camera zooming in from like overhead and then it comes like right in on the window they're not showing you who this you're assuming it's Job which might be Phelps but they're not even showing it it's just you're just seeing his arms and he's taking apart his ghetto blaster get it (laughs) (laughs) with a gun it's a ghetto Um,
1: blaster
0: (laughs) uh But they never show him. So, Brian De Palma, he just, he never comes right out and tells you what's going to happen in this movie until the last minute, which it's a way that the TV show did it, but it's a way of doing it, you know, kind of like two or three times more extreme. Uh, And when they're on the train here, like you don't even know Ethan's plan, there's the quick shot of Kittredge. Another thing you'll catch on repeat viewings is that when he opens this letter and it's uh, the train ticket or whatever, he's like, well, how long do we get to the train? When he, Reaches in the envelope, there's a watch in the envelope, which I never caught until I'd seen this movie probably a dozen times. And that's important because that's how Ethan's going to reveal that Phelps is still alive. You have to rewatch the movie to see that with this ticket, the watch comes as well. And this is Ethan, you know, uh, basically setting up Phelps uh, and bring Kidridge in. Because I think you're still suspecting Kidridge. Maybe you can tell me, were you suspecting Kidridge as the villain still at this point? I think so. <laughs> My- I'm still not sure.
1: I think I was. I, yeah, I, like I think. Yeah, I,
0: I would agree with that. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it's back and forth, and even the way that Kibridge plays this, it's still great. Um, when Ethan calls up Max here, and they're on the phone, and she's like, she's all upset with him. First, they're having their first lover spat. And she's like, this isn't what we agreed upon. He goes, oh, my apologies. But if you reach under your chair, the disc is right there. And then she's like, my dear boy, I hope this doesn't preclude us meeting in private later. (laughs) 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 And Ethan basically says, well, what about Job? He goes, oh, don't worry. When you find the money, Job's going to find you. Uh, So she tells him where the... uh, Briefcase is with uh, the combo 314 <laughs> Luther's sitting nearby so you get like the Luther cell phone thing, the 1996 cell phone. and here you can clearly see the Apple laptops too that everybody has. This is blocking the signal. so the whole question of why would Ethan get this real knock list, because he knew that it was only the authentic thing that would allow him to uh, get in with Max, and that only by delivering the authentic thing would Max deliver Job to him, and only by delivering Job would he be able to turn them into Kid Ridge, but only by having somebody he could trust, like Luther, to block the signal from getting out would the Noclipus never get out, and they'd be able to save the world. It's extremely complicated. You'll get it when you've seen it about four or five times. <laughs> um But all the trade stuff here is great, too. Like the music, too. Danny Elfman, who did the score for this, he came on very last minute. Like Alan Silvestri did Back to the Future, uh, among many other movies, too. Uh, He had started scoring this movie, actually completed about half of the score. And then they didn't like it, and they rejected it, and they said, well, let's bring in Danny Elfman. And Danny Elfman quickly put this together. Uh, You can still hear some of Alan Silvestri's Mission Impossible music. Some of it I've heard is pretty decent. It's just it, it sounded too modern, and I think Danny Elfman's music sounds like, you know, traditional uh, spy music. Um, but some of Alan Silvestri's music ended up being recycled in a racer with Arnold Schwarzenegger, which I think was the same year. Um, the train scene here, so when uh, Claire walks into – you still haven't seen Ethan. When Claire walks in and she starts talking to – she thinks Jim. I was totally fooled when I was seeing this the first time, that she's talking to Jim. And now you realize, oh, she's in on it too. But then when – Tom Cruise pulls off the mask. You meddling kids, you realize (laughs) (laughs) it was actually him all along. And now he set up Claire and he goes, I'm very disappointed to hear you say that. Jim comes in and here's where he's all like cocky and like, uh, I would have gotten away with it. You know, he's like, it's Ethan Hunt, dear. Don't you remember?
1: (laughs) (laughs) You just fucked him like an hour ago.
0: Well, and that becomes a major part here. And this is where I say I have some appreciation for uh, Emmanuel Barrett's performance as Claire because it's not until the end you realize that her whole purpose was to seduce Ethan enough that he wouldn't be on to them. So that the only way they're going to fool Ethan is if he believes she's innocent. And that's why I think the very subtle flirting stuff she does, even that opening scene with him uh, and throughout the movie is important. Now, why Ethan decides to sleep with her still? Because he even says "Tim, it's like, well, why would you go along with this? Then why would you do this? He goes, well, because he didn't know if you were in on it yet. So then why did he, if he suspected it, why did he go back and sleep with her? Was He's he funny. thinking like, yeah, your husband's a terrible person. I'm going to show you a real man. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's 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 very confusing, but still fantastic. Um,
1: That's exactly what she said after she slept with Tom Cruise.
0: Yes. <laughs> so they're eventually, you know, just say, let's just t- take the money and get away with this. And uh, John Voight's telling him, well, you're the only one to see me, so nobody's going to believe you, Ethan. And he goes, just one second. And he pulls out the glasses. And at that moment, they're cutting to Kittredge, which is the first moment you actually think that Kittredge might – be in this because that's the other thing i'm talking about the setup of kidridge here could he still have been the villain you know that job's supposed to be on the train and here you just have kidridge getting up a, a train ticket is this coming from max is it coming from ethan who knows uh you only find out later on when you see the watch and he reveals it and it's like i'm not the only one who's seen your face and then he has that for mission impossible tv show fans the iconic line good morning mr phelps which is how every mission started with that that line um this leads to the final climax, the final action sequence uh, on top of the train, which it's not real stunts and they did it on a real train. But like, if you look up how they filmed this, wind machines weren't even powerful enough for what Tom Cruise wanted. They basically had to get like this super high-powered thing that's done as like a simulator for skydiving um, to be able to blast the skin off of Tom Cruise's face. So when mm-hmm. you're seeing him in the wind, I mean that is real and that's a real wind machine, probably like the same one they used in Twister, uh, right up close to his face. That's how they got these shots. It's probably the only sequence of the movie that feels like a typical action movie, but I still love it because it's something that you don't normally see, like two guys fighting on a train, being blown all over the place. Like There's some great shots where he's dangling from the side of the train um, when Jean renault has got the helicopter coming in there. So now you know for sure Krieger's in on this too. Uh, and the other train comes in. There's some bad... You know, effect shots there with the helicopter, but I think for the most part the fight on the train holds up. The final moment where he takes the gum and he's like, "Red light, green light." I can remember even in nineteen ninety six as much as I love this movie, just kind of groaning and be like, "Oh, <laughs> it had to be one of those action movies." Which again, when we get to Ghost Protocol, there's another moment where they do something equally bad for that final line and actually kind of make fun of it in the process. Uh, but here it is a little bit cheesy, but great final shot. Which always surprised me that I remember seeing this in theater, that final shot where the helicopter blows and it throws him across onto the train. Which, just the distance that they had to throw him, even if that was blue screens, to make that shot work, you know, uh, effects-wise with with, uh, cables and stuff. That's incredible. But it's the fact that when you watch the trailer for this movie, that's the final shot that's shown in all the trailers, all the TV spots. Then when I saw the movie, I'm like, why did they give away the end of the movie? Because I was just waiting for that to happen. So I I think that was maybe careless promotion to show the biggest effect shot and the biggest stun in the movie in the trailer when it is the final part. Um, But still, I think the fight's fantastic on there. Um, Oh, yeah, I forgot the the, the part there. was like, I always check the batteries. That's the other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyways, so uh, finally, the end of this movie here. Where the the helicopter is spinning around, I can't miss this part. This is this is our do moment. The the train conductor who's just like wide, eyes wide open just passes out. That's totally another sky. Can you believe how many Skyfall things have <laughs> been ripped off of yeah. shit possible? I never
1: Boo, saw that. the helicopter chase. Uh, the yeah. train chase on top.
0: <laughs> it's the exact same movie. Anyways, final part of this movie. uh quick cafe meeting between luther and ethan you find out that they're allowing luther back into the imf the same offer was given to ethan but he's like oh i don't know why i would do it um dreams by the cranberries is playing here so i know this song was very famous before it i'm sure i had heard this song many times my mom was a huge cranberries fan i'd heard it a million times but like still to this day if i hear this song i'm thinking mission impossible and i know that's another thing that most people aren't gonna think mission impossible final cafe scene Bing Raves, tom cruise <laughs> But that's Comberries. my that's my memory of this song. Uh, oh, oh yeah. Fine, I have to talk one more thing with Mac. So the the where Kidridge comes in and she's like, you know, my uh, lawyers are gonna have a field day with this. Well, let's just leave the courts out of this. She's like, I'm sure we can come to some other arrangement.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, yeah. Kid Ridge and Max, that is the spin-off I want. Those two <laughs> will be such a great couple on screen. Um, final scene, Ethan on the plane. Uh, would you like to watch a movie, sir? No, that's okay. What about the cinema of the Caribbean? Aruba, perhaps? Jamaica?
1: <laughs> Ooh, I wanna take it to.
0: <laughs> and finally, the Adam Clayton, Larry Mullins theme, which uh, <laughs> Uh, that's I, I've heard so many different variations of the Mission Impossible theme, and I love the Star Wars theme. I love the Indiana Jones theme. I've always said though the greatest movie theme of all time is Superman the movie. But I've always said that even Superman the movie does not touch the Mission Impossible theme. And it, the fact that this version of it, I, I bought the single. I think you mentioned that you bought the single for Die Another Day. Was it? Sorry to bring that oh, up. Of
1: course. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, Which I was. We cannot
1: more... hear now because it's the Oz Network and we don't. <laughs> right the-
0: Damn it. <laughs> Suck it, Waterworth.
1: <laughs> that was such an evil laugh. <laughs> and I would have gotten away with a two
0: if Ben didn't play the song anyway. <laughs> but anyways, um, this version of the theme. I mean, I, I I knew the theme song prior to this, but this was huge to have two of the guys from YouTube do a remix of the Mission Impossible theme. And I can, I know all the differences in this, and I, I could tell you all, all the differences in the Limp Biscuit version and. <laughs> uh, every, and when we have the, the Imagine Dragons <laughs> version, all those. Um But with this one, I it's probably the only time I ever bought a single. I was never much was like, this is a great song. I would just record it on the radio. But, like, I saw this in stores. And I'm like, I have to buy the single for the Adam Clayton, Larry Mullins, Mission Impossible. And I wish that I could find it to this day just because I think it had some cool remix on there, which I'm sure I could download. But it's just a pride thing, you know, having the Mission Impossible theme from Adam Clayton and Larry Mullins. But there it is, Mission Impossible. Dun, dun.
1: Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Recording <laughs> off the radio, the 90s version of downloading songs.
0: Um, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I mean, I don't know really what else. I just, I didn't get the whole, again, I wasn't sure who's evil and then he kills Claire and then I'm like, what? And then I'm <laughs> not understanding what mm, I was doing and then Ving Reigns, yeah, all that sort of stuff. It's still over my head. But, um, the action scene at the end on the train. Now, this is essentially a fight between Tom Cruise and an old man with suction cups. Yeah. And. (laughs) (laughs) Followed by another old man in a helicopter who somehow can fly in a tunnel perfectly. Uh, I've tried to do that in Grand Theft Auto. It's not easy, (laughs) alright? It's like. You don't have much room to move with your propeller blades, um. And like, I'm not trying to bag out this scene. Like, it's it's an entertaining scene, but I do love the fact that the majority of this action scene is literally Tom Cruise laying down with wind being blown in his yeah. face, pulling faces, like going, oh, no, like not being able to move. Did you just roly polies every five seconds and luckily lands in the right spot of John Voight? Um, so like. He's very lucky in this scene that he like I just want to see an edit when he rolly polys wrong ah! and gets like squashed by the other train. And then just like John Vogt goes, Oh, that was easy. He gets on the helicopter, flies off the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do like the bit when he's like laying back after he's survived and the blade like comes within like an inch of his face. And then Hannah Stokely in the background just
0: faints <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, I just, I just don't get this tape thing on the plane. I just literally want someone in the background. I want to watch a film from the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a little kid. Mommy, mommy, he won't let me watch the movie. Excuse me, sir. <laughs> could you please let my son watch the movie? Oh, no, I, mommy, he won't let me watch the movie from the Caribbean. <laughs> um, yes, I don't really have a lot to add. I still don't understand a lot of this movie, but it's good. I was entertained. Uh,
0: it, it is completely different from all the other Mission Impossible movies. And that's the first thing we'll say Like before we talk about Mission Impossible 2. Is that this movie came out and I think they immediately said we're making a sequel to it. From the very beginning, Tom Cruise said the sequel is going to be totally different. and Normally you get that where they're just saying, oh yeah, we're going to do something really crazy with the story. He said... I want all of these Mission Impossible movies to have their own feel. I'm going to get a different director for every movie. And we're going to use different style of directors and everything. So there was never a thing where, like, Brian De Palma was coming back. Um, but there, there was going to be a sequel from that point on, no matter what. And I remember when this movie came out, it was it was kind of a weird thing where, like I said, the, the reaction people had, audiences that saw it were like, yeah, that was a good movie. Or they're like, ah, it was okay. There's some problems with it. But yet it made a ton of money and it made a ton of money in repeat business so I think there were a lot of people who just wanted to see this for a second time to understand the movie because years later like I said that Larry King interview before two came out where they're you know still talking about is the second one gonna be as complicated as the first one like nobody understood this and it's not that people were dumb it's just movies weren't told like this at the time and that's totally Brian de Palma I mean if you look at like the filmography of Brian de Palma where this guy came from I mean he he you know got his Big break doing like the Stephen King movie Carrie in the the seventies, uh, but then from there like this is the guy did Scarface and The Untouchables, um, Raising Kane one of the weirdest movies I've ever seen in my life. Snake Eyes with Nicolas Cage came after this. You did Mission to Mars that was weird uh, but fun yeah. I guess. <laughs> the Black Dahlia this is kind of his style and at the same time I think he brought your typical Mission Impossible style to it. So people were appreciative of this movie when it came out, but it wasn't like. It wasn't like everybody was floored by it. It was that like people were interested by the movie. And it definitely was like daring, and that's what brought people back to it. Um, but I think the reputation has definitely improved over the years because when you look at like the reviews of this when it first came out, I mean, 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, even the reviews for when it first came out, I mean, it, most of them were mixed. Uh, most of them basically said... Yeah, the movie doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, It doesn't have a lot of depth to the characters, which it's not supposed to. It's Mission Impossible. Uh, One review here is really dumb. It basically says, oh, there's too much special effects in it. Can you tell me, other than the train scene or the explosion, one special effect shot in this movie? Because I'm even blown away about how little action there is. It really is just a story-driven movie the the entire time.
1: The the masks, masks, yeah. The masks, yeah.
0: But well, like so the they TV look show, actually
1: pretty good. Can I just say they yeah. actually look pretty clever?
0: Yeah, and I try to pick it apart to say, oh, they probably actually had John Voight filming this scene here, but the reveal shot—that's not CGI. They weren't capable of that at that point. They made a John Voight mask that Tom Cruise is wearing, and it doesn't suddenly look like Tom Cruise is wearing a John Voight mask. It is very impressive. But I mean, I wouldn't call this a special effects movie. Wear, but uh, box office. So this is where it gets really fun. Like just to see the power of Tom Cruise's star power at this point. TV adaptations weren't making a ton of money. I mean, the Flintstones made a lot of money, but that was appealing to kids. This is a much more serious movie. I like the Flintstones movie. I don't I know. I actually
1: like that movie too. I was about to say. That. Yeah. <laughs> the second one, uh, not so much.
0: <laughs> but this movie, it opened on a Wednesday, so it didn't even have an, an opening. It made $11 million. We're talking 1996 dollars eleven, almost $12 million on its opening day, which was a Wednesday. And this is before school let out. So it's summer movie season, but school hadn't let out yet. Uh, This surpassed even like Terminator's opening uh, day, went on to grow $75 million in its first week of release, which surpassed Jurassic Park, uh, had $56 million, which was the biggest Memorial Day opening of all time up until this point, Uh, going through the overall box office. uh, Well, first, before we get to the overall box office, let's look at the the weekend here. We like to always look at what was out the week this came out. So May 24th, 1996. The only other movie that opened against this was another spy movie, Spy Hard, with Leslie Nielsen, <laughs> which you can imagine wasn't quite the same. Great oh, theme Leslie song in Nielsen. that. Leslie
1: Nielsen, rest in peace.
0: Weird Al's theme song, iconic. Uh, mm-hmm. This knocked off Twister, which was in second place, with $37 $37 million is third week of release for Twister. Now, Twister didn't open as big as this, but it ended up outgrossing it on the yearly chart, you know, because it had even more uh, repeat business than Mission Impossible did uh flipper the movie in its second weekend was in fourth place <laughs>
1: sorry <laughs> it's got um paul hogan in it flipper yeah. oh. or as new zealanders call it flipper
0: <laughs> the truth about cats and dogs the craft toy story this is like six months after toy story came out that's crazy uh primal fear the birdcage heaven's prisoners that was the top 10 oh, the Uh so mission impossible was number one for uh, second weekend, still number one, twenty one million. Third weekend, it was knocked off by The Rock with Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. And Braveheart
1: was out for the fifty third week. Can I just point that?
0: <laughs> out? Just... Wow, uh, sorry. But like, just giving a glimpse at nineteen ninety six box office. I mean, it wasn't huge coming here, but I mean, you had of the competition, and the fact is, in the long run, this movie it ends up as the third highest grossing film of the year behind Independence Day. Uh, and Twister, and it even outgrosses Jerry Maguire. So, I mean, Tom Cruise, 1996 is his year, third and fourth highest-grossing movie of the year, Uh, biggest opening weekend in history, really, at this point. Um, The movie, as far as overall gross in the series goes, so uh, domestically, it ended up taking in $180 million, uh, but when you look at adjusted, so that would place it fourth out of the five movies, unadjusted, for overall gross. It still outgrossed Mission Impossible 3, Adjusted gross, this is still number one. $375 million is what this would have made uh, with uh, adjusted ticket prices, ahead of Mission Impossible 2, which would have been $366. Um, worldwide, this is still the same. It's fourth, but $457 million worldwide. So, I mean, this movie was huge. North America, huge overseas. Uh, I just remember it being a massive movie that came out, especially... I think it was surprising considering I don't think it appealed to a lot of young people the way that Independence Day and Twister did that same summer uh, or, you know, movies like Flipper did for an even younger audience. <laughs> Flipper. But uh. huge box office, mixed reviews from critics, and uh, as far as the uh, awards go, no Oscar nominations. Uh, I, Ralph Saxon, come on. <laughs> <laughs> But it did get an MTV Movie Award nomination for Best Action Sequence for the Train Helicopter Chase. Uh, The Video was nominated for Best Video from a Film. And uh, the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards, Tom Cruise was nominated for Favorite Actor for Mission Impossible. It's kind of just weird that just showing you again the difference in 1996 until now, this movie was a huge hit. Uh, It spawned a huge franchise. Now, you can always look at a sequel to see how big a movie really is. And there's no way Mission Impossible 2 comes out and basically makes the same amount of money, uh, being a worse movie, I think, overall. If people didn't love this movie, it's just, I think it took them a year or two for it to catch on because looking at even the awards, it's not even like this thing's cleaning up on like People's Choice Awards or anything. But yet, nobody disliked it. It's just, it took two or three viewings for most people to get it. Once they got it, I think this is one of these things on video, it really took off. So by the time two came out, people were like really excited. And I mean, the franchise that's now the longest running, you know, continuous franchise in the world is still going.
1: Well, that's like an awesome Powers, isn't it? I mean, that didn't really do anything when that came out, but it was down to the videos that kind of made that a a bigger thing than it was. Um, Yeah, I mean,. I am looking at this list and I can't believe Mission Impossible 2 is still technically the highest grossing of these, uh, films if you don't adjust it. Um, so, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about this in the coming weeks at how, how did number four get made when I guess Mission Impossible 3, was that technically a bomb considering it made only 134 million compared to the the first two? But, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a pretty big thing that this was the third highest grossing film because, you know, going back to what we're talking about with, tv adaptations at this time i mean what is there a list of tv adaptations what is the highest grossing tv adaptation of all time um uh, TV adaptation? i can see it live action right in front of me never mind it's star trek it. of course it is um does, does that so, really
0: count that's a spin-off more than an adaptation
1: well i guess if they're technical i mean before this it was the fugitive uh yeah. no sorry it still was the fugitive at this point uh this made just three million dollars less than the fugitive so there you go. That's what the benchmark was. Um, and before that, uh, if you look at here, if I'm scrolling through this quickly, the Adams family was third, <laughs> uh, from 1991. So these movies weren't really making that much money yeah. back at that time. So that that's interesting to kind of see that amount of box office.
0: Yeah. I mean, I definitely remember that. Tone changing and like people's opinion of this as well, which, you know, uh, you probably wouldn't remember that or didn't follow it as much. But as we lead into Mission Impossible 2, uh, oh, I guess we have to rate this movie, too. We shouldn't forget that. Uh, Yeah, probably. (laughs) Uh, So buy it, rent it, bin it. I definitely feel for you because I don't know what I would have done. I remember seeing this the first time and thinking that was a really good movie. Let's go watch it again. We watched it again. It came out on video. It probably took like three or four viewings before I really was like, this is like my favorite movie of the year. Um, For me, it's definitely a buy. I mean, I would still say, although this movie maybe has some flaws with it and it's definitely different for modern audiences, this is not the one you want to be introduced to. I mean, Mission Impossible – all the movies are completely different, but I think you really have that first trilogy and then you have now this second trilogy that has kind of just become something huge and something very critically acclaimed with, you know, four or five and I'm assuming six will be the same. But like people weren't quite as sure about these original ones. Uh, but I mean, I still look at this in some ways and think, well, it's maybe tied for my favorite Mission Impossible movie. We'll have to listen to the other episodes to find out what my other one that's tied for it is. So this is an e- easy buy it for me.
1: Definitely number two for you is your favourite. It's everyone's favourite, isn't it? Um, I don't hate this movie. I don't absolutely love this movie. Uh, I don't understand this movie. <laughs> Will I go out of my way to watch it again? Probably not. I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm going to rent it. Uh, I think it's definitely got enough in it that's entertaining to warrant me, you know, looking at this another time. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're about to talk about Mission Impossible 2 and I just remember very negative things about that film. So, Um. yeah, I mean, compared to that, I mean, I could completely change my mind. I don't know, but about next week, that is. But yeah, I I would rent this one. I think it's just kind of... It's there and thereabouts for me Uh, this time.
0: And the other thing I just wanted to mention with this one is that although if you look at even just the the ratings and the the reviews for this, like uh, Rotten Tomatoes and everything else, that it probably has the second lowest rating still to this day, and yet among Mission Impossible fans... Most will kind of go back and say, in some ways, this is still the best of the movies. So I think typical critics don't quite necessarily get it, even just your average audience doesn't get it. But like the diehard Mission Impossible fans absolutely love this movie, like adore this movie. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why I say its reputation has definitely improved over the years. Uh, so we we'll, will got to buy it and rent it. Um, I, I will let the cat out of the bag here. Part two is not the other movie tied for my favorite one. <laughs> Uh, but I probably have more positive things to say about this than most people do. This is sort of like the the lost world in Jurassic Park 3 that we have. Um, I feel like Mission Impossible 2 almost is sort of unfairly criticized, just in that it, when it came out, and even today, it's more like, similar to like the Justice League movie. When people watch it, they, they went into it maybe with low expectations. They saw it, they're like, it's a fun movie. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just it doesn't live up to... The other movies, uh, or you know, similar to uh, like we were talking about the Jurassic Parks, the way that people might look at the Lost World and Jurassic Park Three, yeah, it's not the first one or whatever. It definitely, in comparison, it is something very different. And it's funny because John Woo, who comes on as the director, a completely different style, uh, and he makes it a John Woo movie, which should not work as a Mission Impossible. But there are moments of this movie that I think work better as a Mission Impossible movie than this first one, even though this is not the best of the movies. Uh, I'll even let this out. I think this is probably the worst of the movies. I still really enjoy this movie, though. I think that when you talk about chemistry, the chemistry between Tom Cruise and Tandy Newton is fantastic in the next movie. Uh, She's amazing. I think we're both big fans of hers. We already talked about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, The villain in it, Doug Ray Scott, uh, there'll be some fun trivia about the big role he missed out on because of this movie. But I think that he's underrated. He's very over the top. It's, it's not really, you know, uh, uh, an intelligent spy movie. It, it kind of just is your typical cartoony, uh, uh, over-the-top Bond villain. Uh, but we even get, like, some, some good supporting performances in here, too, like uh, Richard Roxburgh, which I know I talked about before. Uh, you said he's a big deal in Australia or whatever. He is, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's great in it. And we get uh, somebody who's been interviewed here on the Oz Network, that uh Tom also, Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah. <laughs> Rolf Saxon returns. But I think it's got a good cast. Joey <laughs> <slap> me! <laughs> uh, the change in locations is great. Like this was the movie, and this is where I'm actually really interested to hear your take on it. It was the movie that sort of introduced Australia as a filming location to people around the world, and there was a huge boom after this, and this kind of started it. Uh, So there's going to be a lot of good things I have to say about this movie, but I definitely understand the problems with it. I just, I mean... It was
1: a big deal when this came out, like that this is being filmed here, and that this was set, and you know, it's it. I just remember the press around it, kind of just how much of a big deal it was. And I mean, I recently went to the the location where they filmed Mm. the final section, um, sort of only within the last couple of months, and I went there. I'm like, I don't remember this bit because I've only ever seen this movie once, and I think it was a similar thing. Dad and I got it out from the video store and. Just, we just didn't like it. And I think this is the film that kind of has stopped me from ever watching any of the other Mission Impossible movies again. I just got to this and I'm like, eh. And I'm like, I didn't really, the first one didn't really stand out to me. So it's kind of like, well, you know, and then I remember when the third one came out, I was like, eh, that doesn't really bother me. So I've just never bothered to see any of the other films basically because of this film. And I haven't seen it in 18 years. So I might like it. I don't know. Um, I do like the Limp Bizkit song. Uh, i I will listen to that song yeah i can't remember the metallica one but um i have i have listened to the limp biscuit song more than i've seen this film and i don't know what that says about my taste but when has my taste ever been good on this show
0: look i'm not a fan of metallica or limp biscuit but like just to show you how much i love mission impossible and the fact that especially with the limp biscuit when they use that theme in there I know both these songs. I have listened to both these songs hundreds of times. <laughs> uh, I know all the songs on the Mission Impossible 2 soundtrack. Uh, uh, yeah, like, I've I've seen this movie so many. Like, I know it by heart, and yet I can't even say it's a good movie. It's, it, this is just going to be like the Jurassic Parks, but I think this is where it's going to be fun watching your reaction when we get to 3, 4, and 5, because most people's opinions improve with all these movies after 2. So much so, so that, like, now this is – people look even at the Daniel Craig James Bonds, which is probably the most critically acclaimed James Bond movies have ever been, and say, yeah, you know, if only they could be a little more like Mission Impossible. I mean, that's where this series has gotten to. And they did it by making every movie completely different, but not making it like the way that you can Thor Ragnarok was so different from the others. It's mm. just – different directors with a different take on it but they're all mission impossible movies. So as we go throughout this is going to be really fun because we got a month and a half of this to go. Are you excited?
1: Absolutely. I mean, 9 don't some of the later ones get something ridiculous like 93% on yeah, Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so the like, last that's, two. That's crazy. I was looking at that today going, "Holy
0: crap, how have I not seen these films?" Mm-hmm. So yeah. And the stunts will get better and better with each one. Like, the next one, it really ups it for the action, too. So uh, I'm really excited to talk about this one and to hear about all the Australia buzz and everything. Um, I just heard someone knocking on the door. I don't think anybody's hearing it. It's 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) Rolf Saxon, come on in! (laughs) I heard you talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, we'll be back next week for Mission Impossible 2 um the f- the first movie of this era to also b- bring back roman numerals i should add outside of like the star wars <laughs> movies roman numerals were dead they p- promoted the movie with the number two but the official title was mission impossible roman numeral two and then that started the whole craze with roman numerals again after this mission so impossible much- 11 yeah exactly <laughs> Uh, Anyways, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes uh, or Stitcher or anything else. Uh, If you're listening to this, you probably already have. So tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, And if we get a thousand new subscribers, we will get Rolf Saxon on the air to just go (laughs) for about two hours straight. And if we get a
1: million new subscribers, we will get Tom Cruise on the show. Yes. Just (laughs) to get him to go... (laughs) (laughs) And then probably and if, yell at us, and we'll just hang up if on If
0: we get no new subscribers, every other episode for Mission Possible Month is just going to be Ben and I going,
1: mm. <laughs> And if we get a billion new subscribers, <laughs> we will get Donald Trump on the show
0: to go, mmm. <laughs> uh, and you've been listening to us go, mm, for the last three hours, so you probably stopped listening already, so this doesn't mean anything. Uh, Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Uh, return next week for Mission Impossible 2. My name is Colin, and really after this episode, all I can say is...
1: "Mm." And my name is Ben, and you know where I'm going with this. Thank you for listening to The Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.